Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, Jim Williams. In your uh, your book, Path of the Puma, we got to talk about that name. We will. But the thing, I'll tell you the thing that surprised me most about that book, like the, the, the singular fact that I would have never imagined is that you're saying in here that like at the end of the last ice age, so the Pleistocene Holocene transition, when we lost all the crazy animals everybody likes to think about, like mammoths and mastodons, that, 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 that North America lost mountain lions? Yes. Well, so the genetic work that's been done is that um, mountain lions and and other species retracted south for a little while and then recolonized a second time. So if you show if you had shown up, um, if you had shown up on the Great Plains or the Rockies or anywhere in, in what we now consider like the lower forty eight. There was a period in time, 9,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, whatever, when you wouldn't have found a mountain lion. Potentially, yes, but there were other species of cats here, too. There was an American lion. Yeah, but they went extinct, too. Cheetah, yes, at, at different times. I mean, we don't know exactly, but with the fossil record and now with the, some of the genetic work with the cats, yes, they, there was a big retraction where perhaps they weren't there depending upon where you were and then refilled in like filled back in from south america well yeah you got a, the central american uh, land bridge and the conditions that were there that were conducive to not only cats they need something to eat they have to have prey so there was probably some uh, mix of 
you know, is there food in the grocery store or are there shoppers, <laughs> you know, yeah. or both? And, and yes, that, that, that's the current thought. And right now, so they refilled in. And is it true that now or was it true at the time of European contact, or is it both, I guess, that mountain lions are enjoy the widest distribution of any land mammal in the Western Hemisphere? Yes, yes, you're correct on, on, on both counts. And if you think about it, um, you know, there was always, always native cultures present and, and mountain lions, and, and the, there's a whole bunch of different names for mountain lions as humans and depending upon on, on tribal culture and, and ancestor stories, there's lots of different names depending upon where you're at in the United States and, wh- and which tribe. They, they play a significant role in, in pre-Columbian civilization in, in the Americas. And then, of course, um, you know, as this country was settled by white Europeans, for the most part, yeah, the cats were here from coast to coast. And slowly but surely, you know, we were really effective at, at reducing a whole host of species uh, moving west. Yeah, I want to talk about that project of elimin- like our very successful but not totally successful efforts to eliminate them from the face of the earth. But what, so they, they can extend from, you talk about in your book, I just want to kind of set the table here a little bit. You talk about in your book, there's an area in Patagonia where they prey on penguins. And then they're all the way up into southern Yukon? Yes. So and they're like, a, they're like, it's a continuous, there's like a continuous strand of them extending that distance. Yeah, pretty much. So it's fascinating to me. And as a wildlife biologist, and particularly working in Montana or, you know, in the western United States, per se, to find, you know, my colleagues down there picking cats up with penguins in their mouth. And these aren't the ice penguins you think of. These are the Magellanic penguins. Yeah, yeah. But they're very similar. They're a penguin. And they, they uh, nest in these colonies like a prairie dog colony right on the coast. And what you have to remember with a cat, with a puma, and, and by the way, a mountain lion, a cougar, a puma, it's all the same thing. You know, we'll talk about sub, subspecies if let's, you want. Yeah, let's later. make that. Okay. The, no, let's, I want, yeah, uh, subspecies and popular names are things I want to get okay, into okay. quick. Well, so the, back to the penguins, though, if you think about it, this, this animal, it's a very efficient um, stock and ambush predator. And they typically, in most of the research that's been done, take the most vulnerable and abundant prey. And uh, Kenny Logan, a researcher in New Mexico, worked on cats for a long time. Um, that was actually his quote, and it's, it's, it, it bears out in every single project. So if penguins are there, it shouldn't surprise us, but to me, it looked very awkward to see a penguin in a puma's mouth on a camera trap photo. Oh, yeah, and, man. And then you go north, you mentioned the Yukon. So, you know, unlike a lynx, or, or even they're more similar to a bobcat, a puma is. But uh, unlike a lynx, which is built for the cold, deep snow, they're light, they got thick fur, um, you know, the whole hair-lynx relationship. A mountain lion's kind of the sports car of the cats. Their fur's shorter, they need a lot of meat, they're going to sink in the snow. So they're, you know, where they can get around and where they can be effective at finding food, it's going to be limited a little bit moving north. So historically, about central BC, Alberta, there's kind of a line. But as we've explored and opened up habitat for um, oil and gas, there are strips of land that produce 
all of a sudden deer and elk food and deer and elk can move north well on the backs of deer and elk these cats have punched north into the pretty far north and in fact uh, the furthest north was a cat that was found frozen in the back of a uh, of an old car and uh, I, yeah, I read about that yeah. in your book but I didn't even understand it yeah it probably curled up in there probably thought it was a uh, you know, the cats like cover. We can talk about that too, but probably fa- thought it was a great place to rest and starve to death. Cats will starve to death. Mountain lions do, and uh, you know, every year, depending upon where they're at and and their their plane of health and winter condition and prey abundance, they can starve. I mean, if they don't eat, they die. Yeah. Didn't one turn up? I remember reading this years ago that one turned up in the Mackenzie Delta, but its ears have been frozen off. It, yeah, that's pretty common. I've I've handled cats even here in Montana with you know the tips of the tail, the tips of the ears. Uh, you know, winters we, we we live a pretty cushy life. <laughs> We're yeah. not out there. You know, nature. A happens. friend of ours, just uh, a hound handler. I don't know if he killed it or a friend killed it, but they killed one that only had uh, have three toes. And what do you think? Yeah, that's, bite or do you think it could have been frostbite or, and lose it to that? <laughs> I'd be guessing. Yeah. But yeah. All of the above. Yeah. Okay. You know, I found him. You know, I've had a cat. I talk about him in the book as a male. Old and Haas. Yes. Yeah. Helmet named him. You know, and I call it cat number six or whatever. But it's just you know, as biologists, you're trying to name stuff. But you know, my helmet, they named every single animal because they they know and they can relate to that. And and he was missing an eyeball. I mean, uh, probably lost it in a fight with another male. Would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting story. Reading about old Haas. Another like cool that. story, yeah. Another cool story in the book is that this. I know this wasn't you, but there's an eyewitness account of a lion. We got let's the next thing we talk about is let's talk about names and let's settle on a name. A lion, mountain lion, is on a mule deer. Someone sees this. The mule deer bucks the lion off, and then they get in a scuffle, and he actually sticks the lion with his antler. That happened right out, if you look out your window here in Bozeman, on the top of the bridges, there were some mule deer researchers flying radioed mule deer, and they were spinning and got to watch that whole uh, scenario unfold up on the divide here. And then you got to witness from a helicopter a lion bust a move on a bighorn, but then lost the bighorn. Yeah, it was kind of our fault. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, messed, you messed we, the hunt up? We, we were doing an annual sheep survey, I, and I had a graduate student down there. That's the chapter on on Terry Inc. and the work in the gates of the mountains there. But we were, I, my pilot was about to retire and it was one of his last flights and we were flying sheep and I had, it just so happened, the capture crew and the graduate student coming down the hill for the morning. I, you, when you fly, you have to go at the crack of dawn where it's less windy, it's safer and the animals are out, right? And so we're kind of going up this mountain slowly looking at, you know, different sheep and um, out of the corner of my eye, I could see a couple hound boxes on trucks coming down along the Beartooth game range. It's got a long, muddy road. But just, you know, you just kind of see it. But you're back on the task at hand. We're looking at sheep, and I see this flash going up below me. And I thought, what? And I took a look. And this is back before digital cameras. I had one of those 35-millimeter Pentax at my feet. It was a little more clunky. And I got that thing up, and I yelled, lion! And my pilot, you know, he was very good. And T was just on it in a second. And it, was, it looked like a big male just racing right up on a bighorn ram. And, of course, the, the cat, the ram went one way, and we were in the chopper, and the cat went the other and stopped and turned around. And he <clears throat> literally looked at us almost in disgust. <laughs> but then, it, then he, you know, then it was like, "What the heck is that?" You know, we're in a chopper. And, pretty, and then pretty the, noisy. The houndsman then treed the cat, right? Well, it's kind of a funny story. So my my pilot was 
you know, near retirement. He, he was mature. And, uh, and, uh, and I told him, I said, we, you know, the capture crew's here. Get back down to the headquarters where the old ranch buildings. And the, and the guys were just pulling in with the dogs and the tranquilizers and the gear. And so he took the helicopter and we just bombed down and landed. And, uh, and I said, you're going to believe this was a cat right up there on the knoll. And they're like, huh? And they just start yanking dogs and leashes out of boxes. And, um, and I, they got their gear and the grad students ready to go. And, and off they go on foot up the drainage, you know, following the helmet. And we kept the dogs on leash. Sure, you just don't turn them loose until you get a track or they, they get a real good scent, right? Kind of short leash them. Leash them. And uh, my pilot's like, let's just sit right here. He goes, we're, I'm too old for this. <laughs> he goes, we're going to fly up there. <laughs> so we, you know, it was on the wildlife management area. So we waited and sure enough, the cat um, treed immediately. The dogs, you know, bayed tree pretty quick. And it was kind of a, a grunt to get up there. And away they went. And as soon as we could hear those dogs barking treed, that's the term the Hellman used, they're barking treed. Um, we hopped in that topper. I've never done this before. It almost felt guilty. And we flew up, landed on the top, turned it off, and I walked down. And, and uh, yeah, there's the cat in the tree. And we started to process it. It was kind of a crazy day. Combination bighorn mountain lion day. Yeah. Hey, uh, real quick, before we get into the names, um, lay out uh, h- how you spent your career. I mean, you spent your career Im- immersed in wildlife, but just give us a quick sketch of that. Okay, so um, I guess what first, you know, it's kind of it's kind of cheesy, but when I was a kid, you know, when when color films and back in the early seventies. And, and no joke, my parents took me to an old Disney movie called Charlie the Lonesome Cougar. I never knew then, clearly, that I ended up spending a career in and out of people and cats at that time. But it, to this day, it's still as cheesy as all get out, but I still love it. That was your inspiration. Oh, that, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm like, that is a cool species. That's a cool animal. And I was born in the farm country of Iowa, and I always looked to the West. I, and I knew bears and moose and lynx were out there. And, uh, but, you know, we're in Iowa. We have pheasants, and deer were not that common when I was, you know. Sure, man. I was yeah. born in 61, you know, and my dad was on the football team for the Hawkeyes in Iowa City. And, and, uh, but I, I get that Fur Fishing Game magazine as a kid. You know, I ran a little Dude, that was, that was the greatest magazine. You remember that? I, oh, yeah. yeah, written a couple stories in there years ago. And, and, uh, but I, I'd get that, and I couldn't wait for it. And we had, I had a little muskrat trap line, right? Got me out. But uh, eventually, you know, farm country you know, had some difficulties. My parents... You were split. a muskrat trapper? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got a hat, little trooper hat. You yeah, know. so run around with a bunch of Victor number one single long springs, no doubt. Yes, and uh, and and then, you know, conibears weren't too popular until later. Yeah. And actually had had a great time on a trap line at Freeze Out here in Montana when I was a field biologist out of Great Falls. Um, just thousands of muskrats there. And we had a yeah, yeah. system. I was lucky to get one one year. And, and although it was, you know, minus zero. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's just another cool experience. But, uh, yeah, so I went from Iowa. I landed in San Diego with my mom and, and kind of overshot everything i did and went <laughs> a, a little too far south but you know what i loved it i mean as four blocks from the beach and pacific beach and i learned how to longboard and and you know, kind of eventually a friend of mine gave me a mask and i stuck that mask on and looked underwater and wow it was just the marine life inspired me so that man i got to get a biology degree it was marine biology it was my undergrad a lot of events sea world and ocean world and a lot of different jobs i had um eventually uh, i was at a I finished my um, undergrad at Florida State, started at San Diego State, finished at Florida State. My dad went there from Iowa, right? And his wife, Jetty. And so I got to Florida and, and I got my marine biology degree and I ended up working for another oceanarium called Ocean World. It was a very small 19, 
60s 50s looking you mean like the kind place. of place where they, they got like tanks with fish and tourists come look at them oh yeah <laughs> and 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 I, I enjoy people and and i i got hired they knew i worked at SeaWorld, so i got hired to you know do the dolphin show and a and a sea lion show and, <laughs> and they never i had to wrestle alligators they didn't tell me that when i got the job but that was interesting um and and this <laughs> was a, in the, you're a showman oh yeah i got friends my nickname was Bawana jim and uh so, oh yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. And in fact, in the alligator show, they even had a had a little spiel that they'd say Jim was, you know, was abandoned as a child in the Everglades and raised by Seminole, the Terminal tribe. Oh, really? Had to wrestle alligators. I had blonde hair, blue eyed, right? It was kind of hokey, but nonetheless, paid the bills. And uh, that was in the mid '80s, and right before Yellowstone burnt in '88. Um, I'll never forget, so I came back to my apartment in Fort Lauderdale, and there's a bunch of bullet holes all over kind of the garage. and I had a Like someone Jeep. shot your garage up. Correct. This is that Miami Vice cigarette boat days, yeah. and his apartment was on a little canal, and some, some kind of crime went bad, and I thought, enough. And cable TV just came out, and I think it was out of Atlanta. It it's a crash course in American history. Yeah, so I, I, TV came on, and I saw that nature, I don't know what it was called, science, nature, a discovery. It was the first one, and they had the Craighead brothers working that bear in the park. And the bear comes off the drug prematurely, and uh, both brothers, you know, they were putting a radio call. They were experimenting with the first tranquilizers and radio callers. They jump in this old station wagon in Yellowstone, and that bear just pile drives into it, charging it mad. And and I just remember thinking, wow, that's a life for me. Oh man, that's just really cool. I want to go out <laughs> west. I still had that yearning to go out west, right? And so I, this is pre-Google, pre-computer. Well, not the mainframe computers were around we had punch cards but so i got to the library to the card catalog right and i pulled out papers from schools around yellowstone right away i was inspired and i landed on bozeman and that's how i found huh who wrote something on bears and big game and elk and harold picton huh okay so i went got home called him and no joke i just said hey this is jim i want to go to graduate school i want to work on you know you know bears elk deer sheep something and he goes where, where are you calling from? And I said, well, Florida. What do you do, Mr. Williams? I'm well, a gator wrestler. I, I said, I'm a dolphin <laughs> trainer, is what I told him. And there was this long, <laughs> pregnant pause. And he goes, do you know it snows in Montana? I'm like, oh, God. Anyway, he goes, you don't have a chance in hell unless you show up and get relationships. I got a line of students from here and all over the world. Bozeman's kind of the mecca for wildlife work here. You know, we're very lucky with the colleges here for wildlife and fisheries. So, okay, to... I'd loaded everything into my Jeep, hung an old shark jaw on my mirror, drove out west, and eventually walked into his office, and he about fell out of his chair. And anyway, still a dear friend today, and he showed up at one of my book signings in uh, Seattle, which was kind of heartwarming too. But that's how I got to Montana 30 years ago, 88, all right, when Yellowstone was burning. And so, jumped into lion work. Well, I came, he actually had me working on bighorn sheep, black bear moose, to, trying to create a funded study to get a master's degree, right? It's got to be funded, you got to have a stipend. And I had a lot of projects that were like really good, but then they'd stop. And then one day I, I walked into his office, he called me in and he goes, sit down. And he throws this Morris Hornacker, he's kind of the patron saint of pumas on the planet, did all the original work and another dear friend, but he throws his monograph from Idaho, the first study ever done on on Pumas, mountain lions, if you will, uh, on my lap. And I looked at that, and I'll never forget, I looked at him, I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, well, you got to pass a test. I had to go up and meet the biologist in Augusta. And, uh, you know, I'm Florida and California. I'm like, okay, this will be good. And uh, I drove up there, and we hit it off right away. And so, yeah, then from then on, whether it was 
working on cats directly, supporting students working on cats, working on hunting seasons for cats, you know, uh, working with South Americans and cats, 30 years goes by in a blink. Uh, pretty okay. quick. So Catamount. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say a name for one, and then you say a name for one, and then you say a name for one. We'll see how if we can get around twice. Okay. Paint, painter. Catamount. Panther. Cougar. Puma. Pangy. Mountain lion. Oh, I'm out. <laughs> Two and a yeah. half. Yeah, and he's tapping out. What did we miss? <laughs> Let me think here. Um, you did Catamount, right? Uh, yeah, like in back in Boone's day, Daniel Boone's day, they said painter. Yeah, painters. Yep. And there's some South American names too. That's what I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Puma. Pangy. Oh, Sisquit. Meh. Uh, oh, yeah, that, I imagine there's tons of indigenous, say, that's tons say, of indigenous words. My, my, my colleagues on the on Salish and Kootenai tribes, and I'm mispronouncing that. And, and, uh, but what does yeah, the word mean? Mount, it's their word for mountain lion. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are there so many names? I personally think that as, as humans, you know, when we, you know, you know, we, you know, we evolved and, and, and came out of, radiated out of Africa, right? And you had hunt, your hunter-gatherers originally and, and I, th- I think that as humans around the planet, we hold these uh, both prey species and predators or large carnivores in very high regard. And, uh, and we, as, because we're humans and typically not the prey now, we associate with the predators. And I think when you do that, whether it's native cultures or, or, or around the world or even today, people kind of associate, if you're a deer hunter, you know, you realize how clumsy you are versus a mountain lion and how they are not, you know. And I, I just think people create folklore and stories and campfire stories because we can associate and relate to them a little bit. You know, as a deer hunter, when you're pursuing deer, you're kind of doing what a, what a mountain lion's doing, right? And uh, I imagine through time, snow leopards, tigers, cats, the same, these different cultures around the planet all have different um, folklore stories on how they relate to that uh, fellow carnivore, really. It's kind of surprising in the name thing. I don't want to be its death, but it's interesting to me because uh, mule deer, right? Not a hell of a lot of ways. (laughs) You know, most things there's not. But then you have these kind of like examples like that, this thing that carried so many titles with it, so many names with it. You know, wolverines, right? I mean, besides indigenous languages, but like in our popular vernacular, there's no option but you'll be sitting around talking to guys that like mountain lions and people be calling them lions cats cougars the same people will use the same different words and you would describe uh at the time of european contact let's just use that like a baseline we kind of touched on that that there might have been a dark age for mountain lions prior to the arrival of man or contemporaneous with the arrival of man where they got knocked back and still had some strongholds in South America, but like European contact, coast to coast, right? Coast to coast, and then lower 48, side to side, top to bottom. How was it, how, what enabled us to damage them so bad? Well, I think two things. You got to, we had kind of a, um, collectively, um, the settlers, um, you know, the European settlers, or uh, you know, referred to as white visitors and strangers. If um, we had a kind of a colonial, um, oh, 
method to our madness, it was pretty much eliminate anything. There was good animals and bad animals. And the good animals provided food and the bad animals would compete with us for that food. And I think um, not only mountain lions, but all carnivores, wolves included, with poisons and bounties, um, you know, we were pretty effective. And, and frankly, we were pretty effective with ungulates as well. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, yeah, a, con- a contradiction there is we eliminated a lot of yeah. good ones too. But you know what? We eliminated the good ones on accident. Mm. And we eliminated the bad ones like very intentionally. Oh, yeah. And, and today, that's still pervasive today. I mean, it's human nature in my mind. If, it, if a fellow hunter, whether it's a person or an animal, competes with us for our our groceries or what we like to do, you know, it sets up conflict to some degree. Yeah. And, uh, but we, yeah, we were collective, collectively as a society, very effective using poisons and bounties. And most of those were eliminated in about 1960. But there was a period, especially in the wildlife restoration days, you got to remember World War II, right after it ended, the GI Bill was created. And that created a lot of graduate programs for fish and wildlife biologists, right? That was a big, turning point um once they got here it was it was restore bighorns it was restore mountain goats restore elk believe it or not restore white-tailed deer and mule deer and antelope which are pretty common now i know that's that's interesting i never heard that that idea about that so many guys coming in and getting an opportunity to go to college yeah and created like help create wildlife programs some states believe it or not Stephen, they there was a directive to come home and create more meat on the landscape wild meat for our boys when they got home from the war. And so, and then you have Adel Leopold creating this initial game management yeah. programs and others, and you had this kind of almost magical nexus, I don't know if it happened today, of creating the academic program, but most important, creating the funding mechanism of the Pittman-Robertson Act where it's a user-pay system, right? And, and the, creating the actual wildlife and fisheries management kind of programs in the country and a funding mechanism together, then wildlife was able to take off state by state. Uh, do, you know, do you understand how, you know, I've read about the wolfers who would, who would poison wolves and how, and I don't know, you know, I never like fact check this that carefully, but it just seems like to be a, a thing you, um, it just seems to be like generally accepted that as the, the, as the market hunters eliminated bison, some of them transitioned quite smoothly into being predator guys, wolfers. And I'd read about how they would take a animal, take an ungulate, their buffalo or whatever, and kill it, but very quickly inject strychnine into its circulatory system so that while its heart's still pumping, it would lace the entire body. And then they would, the wolfers would let that sit and then go out and look around and collect up hmm. poison stuff. Is that your understanding of how, because everybody likes to talk about poisoning grizzlies, poisoning mountain lions, but what is the, like, what was the actual delivery mechanism? Well, that, that's a good, and I have not heard that, although it, I don't even know it if that's makes true. sense. It I've makes, read it, but I, I mean, don't know if it's true. It's kind of makes sense, but poison lace baits. And again, we got to think about right now, we think about cattle on the landscape and I'm talking the West primarily, yeah. but it was domestic sheep back in the day, right? Back when most that's of these... What got, that's what really oh, got them into yeah, trouble. And, and domestic sheep can almost... They're, they're kind of fragile, uh, especially when it comes to even small carnivores around. Coyotes, you know, bobcats. I mean, uh, domestic sheep. Uh, uh, and they all had herders. And protecting flocks of domestic sheep 
in mountainous areas is extremely difficult, more so than cattle even. And so poison was a common way to control predators. And again, it was that whole concept of good animals and bad animals. Lacing baits. Yeah, po- lacing poison baits. But what happened is it's indiscriminate killing. Oh, so yeah, not only man. do you kill the bear, but you kill the fisher, the marten, the wolverine, the eagle. You kill anything that comes around, depending upon the poison that was used at the time. So it's some, it's, it is indiscriminate, and even birds of prey. And, and so it was very effective. And then you throw a bounty on top of that. Yeah, explain how those systems work. Well, depending upon the state and depending upon the government at the time, um, trappers, hunters were paid for pelts, you know, to turn them in. And, and, and frankly, that's probably created an economic activity in that point in time in our country to, you know, go out and learn how to kill cats, kill bears. Was it good kill money? coyotes. Um, I don't know. I assume so. it probably was. I mean, look, at, there were some pretty tough times in some pretty rural, remote places. I mean, Montana is still, frankly, remote now. Think about it. You know, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, you know, 150 years ago, it probably was good money for them, or it was survival. Yeah. Probably not a lot of jobs around. But there were still bounty systems up through the 1960s, right? Correct. Well, yeah. And, and I think, yes. And it, there was kind of a staggered rate of eliminating those. And, and again, I'm going to go back to the field of wildlife management was created, right? And World War II ended, the biologists got here, and then this whole concept of not just pure game management, but the whole notion of ecology and systems kind of came on board, and that some of the bad animals, which are predators, uh, talking about cats, one of many, had a role to play in the ecosystem. And Aldo Leopold, you know, talks about it in San County Almanac. The, yeah, the, the mountain and the, the, the green, yeah, green, fierce green fire, fire yeah. The green fire dying in the wolf's eye. Yeah, but yeah. it took him a long time to get there, right? And so that's the thing I think a lot of people well, anybody that's read his book knows, but you know, he went out like when he moved out west, he went out to kill predators. Was his, he was that's his day was spent. Yeah. He's burned his time up trying to eliminate predators from the landscape. And, and, it, had, and it had some epiphanies around that. Oh, yeah. Well, once biologists started looking at the habitat and the landscape as, as a baseline versus the species, yeah. that changed a lot. Then, then that whole notion of systems, um, ecosystems came about, and landscape ecology and, and, and what role carnivores play. And, and you, frankly, feel that that, you feel that that thinking helped usher out the bounty phase? Yeah, well, that, a little bit, but uh, if you want to go there, I'll tell you my thoughts on what happened. And I, and I, I think I'm right, but <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> yeah. arrogant, but I, because it's... it's, well, it's let, me, let, me, let me stack a question in there before you do that. Okay. Because I feel like it's going to segue. Uh, how bad did it get? For oh, oh, like like how loaded they, lion numbers get? Very low. They were and um, more, Dr. Morris Hornacker, who I mentioned earlier, is kind of the patron saint of pumas. That's what I call him in my book. But he's a dear friend, a bird hunting fool, and he's he's even still hunting elk, and you know he's long retired. But uh, he had to work in Idaho in the largest wilderness area left in the United States to get a large enough sample to make it statistically valid to say anything scientifically about cats. That was the first study in the 60s. And he couldn't find them anywhere. He couldn't find a population large enough or, that was, or, he, or he didn't lose a sample every time he put some marks out. This is the early radio callers, right? And mm-hmm. ear, ear tags. They were all getting shot still back in the 60s. But it, they, and he had to go into the Frank Church or something. Yeah, to way find, back. To find an to find a reasonable population. Yes, big, absolutely. So they were really knocked back. You got landowner tolerance, you got bounties, you had poisons, and there was this, you know, generations of thought you know, of these good animals and bad animals. And but so, entirely yeah, got, eliminated from the eastern U.S. except Florida. 
as I understand it, correct. Yes, um, with, that's interesting too. Yes, there's some there was some pretty remote country in Florida, even today in Central Florida, on those large swampy ranches. Between the insects and the plants, they're pretty harsh for humans. You can be pretty tough to get in there, and, and you can see why there is some impenetrable areas. Yeah, but ba- so so basically, like for any like for any practical purpose or any ecological for ecological viability okay never mind like like genetic extinction yeah but like ecological viability basically everything from the rockies east excluding a small portion of florida or texas down in the very bottom a little bit in the middle but yeah still yeah west texas they were eliminated eliminated. correct that's a yeah that's that's as i understand now that doesn't mean that every odd year, mountain lions just like wolves disperse a long ways. You oh know, yeah, take one shows up. But for all that's what that's what I want to talk to you about is another thing I'd like to get to eventually if we have time is the what used to be dismissed in the early two thousands even dismissed as every lion that showed up in a weird spot. Okay, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan was always an escaped. Yeah, zoo animal. <laughs> Always an escape pet. But then it'd be like, man, there must be a hell of a lot of people letting yeah, yeah. full-grown, clawed, seemingly very wild, bellies full of deer meat, mountain lions loose. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah I'm sure it's happening. They show up in freak places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They just get up and go. Mm-hmm. Um, so so but, but to answer your question oh, about what, if, if you... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to make sure that you hit this point. Yeah, I because it's my, my opinion. What you think Yeah, what I think. But I, but I wanted people to know how bad it got in order to talk about what saved them. Real bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I think happened, you had this tradition of... It's very difficult to run cats, and that's a term where you turn a trailing hound loose that's specially trained to smell the scent of a cat, which we're not capable as humans of doing that, right? But these dogs are. They're canids, right? You know, they're like a bear. They, they see the world through their nose. And so they switched from bounties to some recreational chasing to train those, and there became a culture of hound men and hound women, but hound men primarily. And as that culture and not occupation, but recreational activity um, evolved and became more popular in each western state. It's something to do in the winter. It's fun to go out. Um, You have all of a sudden people enjoying a mountain lion on the landscape and enjoying that relationship with the hound and the cat in the woods because these hounds and cats will take you to places you've never been. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened that, well, I know what happened, and I know what happened in Montana, is all of a sudden, with the, with the science coming on in the biologist in the 60s and 70s, we're starting to study more things, right? But all of a sudden, you have a user group that is now not biologists. They're pretty rural in nature. They're pretty tough. It's extremely difficult to do. Advocating for a mountain lion, and that had never happened before outside of maybe someone just you know, thinking they're a cool animal. So now you have this culture, and the culture of running cats with trailing hounds in Montana, particularly where I live in northwest Montana, goes back over 100 years. We have a long winter, and there are houndmen and families and hound women that have dogs, and they'll tree and photograph cats all winter long for six months. I was hanging yeah. out with a houndsman yesterday morning. He's treed 200. Yeah. Oh, He's yeah. killed two and regrets, yeah, exactly. the se- regrets the second one. Really? And that, that's funny. He wishes he hadn't have done it. <laughs> they, they, Stephen, and they, you asked me the question, I think 
it was the Hauman. They carried the, they punched above their weight politically, you know, with the regulators, whether it was state fish and wildlife commissions. How so? Just because deep connection to the, like, like a, yeah. their families had a long track record on yeah. the land. If I, I go in and make a comment as a biologist, you know, yeah, care. yeah okay, I'm a biologist. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's, they're looking at science and papers and research. But if I go in there and I'm a Hauman and I've known and I, I've known your family for three generations and you're a legislator and I'm a Hauman and my family's been there, you know, who are they going to listen to more? Well, all of a sudden you got these tough, very in the woods all winter long. Gun toting. Um, you, everything, everything. They're loggers, they're miners, they're, 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 you name it. They're ranchers even in some cases, in some states. But all of a sudden you have a user group that really treasures the opportunity to have that dog-cat relationship all winter long. Well, that's a game changer in my mind. Then they, along with the biologists, in about 1971 together, worked the state commissions in each state to make them game animals. So you got rid of bounties in the early 60s for the most part, but that as soon as cats became a legally classified game animal, and this is a big deal, because once that happens in a state, now you have a game warden that protects them with the law that any state commission adopts. All of a sudden, they're treated seasons, like a deer or elk. Yeah, you seasons, bet. quotas. And out of season take, all of a sudden, it's illegal. That is a game changer. And it was the Howman working with the department biologists in these states that, that was this wonderful relationship that, that made that happen in my mind. And to this day, and in my country, you know, I write a little, I have a whole chapter on season setting in there. It gets kind of wild, kind of Western at times. But to this day, the hound men, the hound handlers, uh, if you will, are the uh, most stringent advocates for cats on the landscape and they watch, they watch every move we make. If we think we're killing or prescribing too many females or too many cats in an area, it's the hound handlers that are front and center in Helena at the Capitol or at a meeting and beating on the table saying, uh, you know, listen to me, I'm in the woods all winter. This is important to me. That's why I think we have cats. You know, there's a ceiling of natural density that they don't pretty much go above. But cats recovered uh, because of this good science that was done. You know, Morris Hornacker started a whole host of students, and and we had advocates in the Hellman that could influence the local legislators yeah. to to not eliminate them. You probably get a lot of people that have a hard time believing that or understanding that oh, when you so, when you tell that to them. Huh? So on my book tour, I was in Boston, New York, and and uh, Chicago, California, Vancouver, BC. I love telling that story. In fact, I, there's some dear friends. That are, I would put them more in the mutualist, their animal protection. They're not hunters. Yeah. They'll never, they're, I won't say never, but they'll probably never ever hunt you know, in a legal season. And they'd be more almost an animal rights kind of philosophy toward a cat. They just want to know they're there, you know, yeah. kind of almost a spiritual value. But when I tell them that story, and a couple of the friends have found out you know, on their own, attending meetings and seeing it happen firsthand, they get it. And so it's this interesting conundrum of this user group that now and again will take the cat. They don't take a cat every year. Yeah, and they're the first people. The hound handlers are the first people, people go, the, the animal rights people go after when they want to attack a state's hunting and fishing rights. Correct. Because so it's, it's a, an easy sell. Yeah. Shooting lions out of a tree. Yes. Who, and, who would support such a thing? Right? Uh, so as, as biologists, and, I, you, and so you're pushing that button in me right now, <laughs> we manage populations and habitat, not individuals. Yeah. As humans... It's so, I mean, it's natural. I, I don't want to be, if I was a white-tailed buck, I don't want to be the buck that's going to get taken. We put hum, human emotions on things, right? But science and data, you know, science 
you know, it's, is a method of investigation, right? Do you look at the data that's produced? It's heartless. It's population management. You can, animals can die and the populations are fine and grow. But as soon as we put, you know, th then you get into fair chase and ethics and how do you define that? A lot of personal values on it, that's when it gets wonky and in the social realm. That yeah. tends to be those fights. What always frustrates me is when those social values try to bleed into the rigorous data on the population management side and, and can trump it. And that's where you see sometimes in, in courts. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that will never go away. As long as there's people oh, here, of course that's going to happen. Yeah. There, there was a quote from your book that I wanted to wedge in at an appropriate time, but I missed my chance. But yeah. it had to do with when we were deliberately trying to wipe them off the face of the earth, mountain lions. You had had a quote where you said, uh, if we ranched worms, we'd declare war on robins. <laughs> And it kind of goes, I thought it was a good line, man. Because it really does like demonstrate a, um, like a thing about us. And it happens, on a, it happens in a broad, large-scale way, like sort of a national agenda, right? Or you have codified state-sanctioned efforts that you talked about to eliminate them from the landscape. But it's also just like really personal, too. You, you go out and plant a garden, and you see a rabbit get in that garden, It'll turn it turns any it'll turn anyone into a killer. Yeah, well look at it was like we like to you know we have a sense of the, the things that are ours that we're cultivating and it's we take it in a real bad way when wildlife steps in and, and complicates the process. Yeah, it's it's human. Uh, look at Bozeman, Missoula, Cal spell with deer in town and trying to grow flowers, <laughs> you know. Yeah, of course, you know, you invest in it. That's it's it's part of us as humans. Can you real quick talk about, we kind of laid out like how bad things got and, and how things started to get better. Um, spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. 
Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. What happened with Florida? With the, like, how could the inbreeding? Yeah, so right? that, it gets complicated, and I'm less familiar with Florida because I've spent my career out here, although I did live there. And, yeah, you and, spent, and, yeah, I should point out to listeners, you spent yeah, your career mostly here, but also yes. you spent a ton of time now in Patagonia. Yeah, and well, in, in Florida, I, when I, I did my undergrad at Florida State and actually have some, some dear friends who get to the, the Mount Lion. A biologist world's pretty small. We get together every three years at these workshops, and and uh, Florida's kind of fascinating. You look at the footprint of mankind on that state; it's giant, right? Yeah. And and so what's left drain half the damn state. Yeah. What's left is a pretty wild place. In the middle of Florida, there's kind of a corridor. I see there's some um, conservation groups working on a connectivity corridor up and down the middle yeah. and on the coast, the Gulf coast. And then that Everglades up, you know, there's some St. John's river, there's some wild stuff there, but you get any population down to where it's effective breeding size. It's just too few females, too few males, you know, inbreeding can be an issue. And with the modern tools, uh, we have with genetics, you can, you can monitor that. And that's what happened there. They got into what uh, biologists call a bottleneck, a genetic bottleneck somewhat. How small? Oh, I can tell you. Sub top 50, of my head. right? Yeah. That, well, I, wanted to, I was going to say 50, but the good news is now um, my, my two buddies that, that run the program down there, uh, they're actually, you know, gr- transportation's a big problem. They still get, get hit on the road, but they're dealing with Panther, Florida Panther. Conflict. Did we use that word earlier? Yeah, I think we, we did. But painter. I don't yeah, yeah. Panther. Now that we're back east, I'm I'm referring to them as Panthers. But okay. my two friends, they're they're dealing with some ag conflicts. That's actually a good sign. It's more work for them, but they've had. Well, they've some gotten it up enough where they're back to being mm-hmm. a pain in the ass. Yeah, and it's still nowhere near recovered. Um, it depends how you define recovery uh, and distribution and and population. But they're starting to have conflicts, and so that's a good sign. Um, but it took a lot of work and a lot of intervention and a lot of uh, TLC down there. But but think about the future. Look at the traffic and the highways and the and the tr- and the highway mortalities. They're always going to have that issue. Yeah. 
and they're doing a lot of work with with um, underpass, overpass yes. situations. But uh, you talked about that when they went through that bottleneck, they be, they ha- they developed some irregularities that you could see with the naked eye. Yeah, Cr- the, kinked tails yeah, and cowlicks. Yeah, they're, yeah. So different species are going to exhibit. There's phenotypic traits and you know genotypic. They, they're going to how that how the genetics are expressed you know, on yourself is going to vary with species. But yeah, they noticed some um, abnormalities that they attributed to the too few cats. And I remember in solving, and I, I know this isn't your, your area of expertise, but I remember trying to solve that problem. They brought in some lions from West Texas. And I remember that raised this question of, okay, here, here's this distinct population that's been genetically isolated the Florida panther. Um, what makes the Florida panther the Florida panther? When you truck some some cougars from West Texas and cut them loose there, is it now, is a Florida panther just a panther that lives in Florida or is it something else? I remember people were like, you know what? The debate at this point is silly because if we don't do this, you're not going to have... They're gone. Yeah, they're gone. So, so you're going to have a corrupted population or you're going to have no population? So there are some brilliant cat geneticists uh, o'brien and uh, melanie culver and i talk about melanie in the book but uh you know we can the geneticists can look at the composition of these and she so a, f- a fun story again this is rolling it back when i started grad school in 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 88 um, there was i think 30 some subspecies of mountain lions right and these are the museum biologists that measure all the skulls and they're kind of called splitters right and there's lumpers right there's lumpers and splitters Gen- you know when, when it came to museum biologists and my brother says there's lumpers and splitters and they know who they are yeah <laughs> well <laughs> it, it, that, that's all fine and dandy until uh you know dna technology came on board right so i remember montana had felis conchlor mesulensis and Colorado had Felis conchlor hippolestis, I believe. Yeah, but there's and no barrier between no, those. No, well, that, that's where they split it until they put radios on them. And then one, <laughs> a, Montana, a Montana cat got shot in Colorado and vice versa. Well, Oh, really? So, yeah, so then Melanie Culver. A and, collared cat. Have you talked oh, about yeah. this in your book? A collared cat in Montana gets killed by a oh, hunter in Colorado they, and yeah, they take, from Colorado. Yeah. So they're not, even, they're not even moving in the same direction. No, no. It's just they, they're they distribute their, their, their DNA on the landscape through dispersal, both males and females, males to a larger degree, and they can flat out boogie. And, but when that happened, it kind of threw everything out the window <laughs> with the skull traits and others. You know, and, and they were very well-intentioned. But with DNA, Melanie Culver and her team you know, got down to roughly six. And that's still evolving today, by the way. But you know, all of a sudden, you have all these subspecies. And all of a sudden, okay, you got a Patagonia one, one up north, and you know, four, maybe less in the middle. That's going to evolve as, as science changes, the, the genetic uh, technology and tools change. But it really shrinks it down a little bit. This is, this is way beyond the scope of this conversation. And, and I wish my brother, my brother's an ecologist, and I wish he was here to articulate his annoyance. But I'm going to try to articulate his annoyance, which will be to his annoyance. <laughs> you tracking? <laughs> but he's like, we're so in love with DNA right now. And we're so in love with genetics right now that we're, we're, we're taking this new thing. We used to have this, like, this Linnaean system where we used to name things on morphology or what it looked yeah, like yeah, to us or, or how it interacted with its environment. And that used to be suitable. And then we get this new shiny toy and we're, and we're 
throwing away all of these ideas that made sense at the time in favor of this new shiny thing that were like, this will be, this is more important than all of that. And the, a, a way that it kind of like, I guess the way that where it winds up having some teeth is this conversation around, I don't know if you're familiar in Alaska, they're trying to do a wood bison yes, yes. reintroduction. There's a big debate about when they were there, where they went, and, but it's like, no, because there's plains bison there that were brought in on a truck, and they're thriving in four places. But they want to establish a new population of this other kind that kind of belong there. But geneticists look at it, and they're like, it's, it's all the same damn thing. Like, they've gotten rid of, like, there's bison, 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 Athabasca, bison, bison, Pennsylvanus, whatever. And so you're using the splitting you're using the splitting to sort of sell an idea to a population of people where you're like, we need to do this because this is the right thing to do because this is the right kind. We're going to put the right kind in the right place and we'll get the bad kind out of the right place. And meanwhile, these other people are whispering in the other ear being like, this is all mental masturbation. Yeah. It's the same damn animal. Well, it's, I, they can all it, breed. There, there's not enough genetic dissimilarity to even be ha- engaging in this conversation but it, then the, the, it's also at the same time driving policy it's yeah, kind of a mess yeah, yeah and i know this is beyond the scope well, of the conversation no, but no. it's interesting right? yeah and and no it it actually relates to to cats and what we're talking about as well but i think personally for me and again i'm kind of more you think where i came up you know 30 years ago almost and and where we're at now with these kids coming out of graduate school that are just top-notch notch geneticists. I think we need both. I think you need the natural history, the relationships, and the influ- what, what influenced this species and, and what drives its behaviors. And you also need to explain it. You know, look at the building blocks. You know, we, we can look at DNA now. And we also have uh, traditional ecological knowledge, the tribal stories passed down from generation. I think we need to put all those in a vat, personally. what I always try and do, and, and look at it all as I try and make my own opinions. But to rely solely on on DNA, although you can kind of go to the bank with that science, but there yeah. is, what does that mean in the environment, right? It's real easy to separate, you know, alleles. Well, it's not easy, but you can do it. But what's that mean in the environment? And, and what, should rela- what should be used more to, in policy or, or court decisions or as biologists, you know? So those questions are, are kind of unanswered. Or, you know, yeah. I mean, that, they're going to play out into the future as, as we can, um, as as those tools are are improved. But what's exciting is it does answer some pretty paramount questions that we were making guesses at as as biologists years ago. But you're right; it's it's a balance. But you could go grab a lion from the southern tip of Argentina and breed it with one from northern BC. Correct? They they'd throw you, like viable offspring. It, my that would be my guess. You know, no one's tried. I may be wrong, but no um, one's tried this yet. Well, in zoos, they probably have, but they I don't have, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they're very similar. I mean, phenotypically, they look—they're a little lighter in color down there, and they're a little larger, but they're a little more angular to me, anyway. But they're very—they look cats, cats, cat kind of, even behaviorally. I want—I want to get into behavior a little bit. How does a lion kill something? <laughs> 
they're a stock ambush predator. You know, you think about a wolf or a coyote, um, you know, they're going to run, they're cursorial, they run their prey down typically. What was the word you just used? Cursorial, they're going to run. They're, they're running. Uh, you you know, ever hear that word, Yanni? No. Cursorial? Yeah, they live in it. Run, like, like a courser. Well, I don't know, we'd have to look it up. Now you're going to ask me something I don't know. <laughs> okay, anyways. Maybe I misused the term, but they run their prey down. Now, cats, they're, they're built to, to you know, sneak in close, a short rush of speed to ambush the animal and take it down, typically by you know, a, a lethal bite to the trachea, the windpipe area. And I know they'll approach frontally because I've seen video of it, but they, they prefer to come from the side or back, right? Well, I think they'll do whatever they need to do <laughs> okay so they don't yeah. their their avenue of approach doesn't really matter to yeah. them i think cover is really key you know there are many forms of stalking cover you know there's rocks and trees and grass but also um light if it's dark right yeah so the depending upon how when a, a prey species is vulnerable you know in, in in different landscapes what this habitat structure is you know they, they've evolved to figure out how to take down food if they don't take them down they're dead you know like mechanically, what are they doing when they kill something? Like, um, like what are they? How are they? How are they using their body so, to, to so, kill? So, if you grab a mountain lion, uh, the paw, the front paw, and you press those digit pads, those claws, the retractable claws, are going to come right out. They're they're just hooks, right? And they're kind of like a bunch of little meat hooks. And so they'll make contact. And I've never witnessed it. And that's one thing I've always wanted to see. Yeah. Very few people have, frankly. You know, now with cell phones, you, know, you can see um, videos now and again. But um, Oh, there's some, tracks. there's some stunning videos. Yes, with yeah. tracks in the snow. Or even the even the decoys. I love the decoys when they have the the archery decoys of a buck and a lion comes in and smacks it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool. But they're, they're doing, you can see the tracks in the snow. Um, and they typically make contact and either knock the animal over or even in, in South America, you can watch on video in those open habitats in the parks where they're visible. You know, they're going to wrap around to the trachea and essentially close the windpipe until they stop kicking. But they eat small mammals too. Uh, they've eaten birds, but primarily a deer-sized animal uh, up here, a, a camel, the wild camels down there. My friend Floyd, um, who's a houndsman in Arizona, I mean, he's got quite a list of things that when he's trailing lions has seen where yeah, they've eaten. Yeah, yeah they're going to get their food where they can. Now you talk about they like to eat porcupines? Oh, so yeah, actually. How, they, do, they, how do they do that? So at, porcupines are funny you brought that up. So, you know, we look at, you know, grizzly bears. People are concerned about bears, loons. A lot of, you could go through a list of species, right, caribou. But one that's flying under the radar that has flat out disappeared west of the divide in Montana is porcupines. Is that right? Yeah, there was campaigns by timber companies to eliminate them, you know, for tree damage. And yeah, host they, gir- they girdle but, trees. Yeah, so. but if you get them low enough, cats also eat them too. And back when I started, you know, in 89, 90, you know, almost every cat you handled had porcupine quills in its mouth or in its nose rarely now we see them a, a little bit but something happened to porcupines disease predation poisons habitat or a combination we don't know that's research that needs to be done frankly west of the divide you go east of the divide in the coolies you can find them everywhere but in the deep green um you know something's going porcupines on porcupines are diminishing there's no advocate there's no rocky mountain porcupine foundation no <laughs> and and they're actually they kind of have the life history I and mean, they're more similar probably to a bear you know they have a slow reproducing life history so they're a little more vulnerable that way but your question about cats and porcupines you know they can take a claw on, on the on the bell on the underside and and open them up but uh, oh yeah the, every almost every cat you handled a while back had quills in its nose not what anymore are some other strange things i've seen uh trail cam photos of 
lions carrying sandhill cranes. Like, just rattle off a little bit of the things you've seen to me. Oh, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me is I was cleaning scats. You'd float their, their poop in the water, and you, you separate different samples, right? And you float it in some water, and there are all these teeny little hooky claws. They were house cats, you know? They lead house cats, and, yeah. and it turns out, I, then I looked at the, I remember looking at the data way back as a student, and it was right near some cabins, so it was eating cats, you know? But they'll, they'll take whatever they can get. Uh, if a dog barks, it's typically safe. Typically, not always, but um, they'll, they'll eat um, whatever the most abundant and vulnerable prey. But I've had them do marmots. I've had them do grouse. You know, over the years, um, uh, they've taken mountain goats. They've taken bighorn sheep. They've even taken moose. Domestic horses, uh, big males. With uh, there's been damaged cattle at times, although uh, less often up here. I feel as though I found where one killed a turkey one time. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, how much do they need to eat? You talk about this a fair bit. Well, most of the research, most of the literature right now is a, is a, is a deer-sized animal a week, typically, and, um, and for a female. And, and if there's lactation demands, they have kittens, you know, they're trying to provide nutrition for um, at least that. Um, and for a male, I've seen them go a couple weeks, and in the literature, it varies. And every now and again, you see a little surplus killing. <laughs> but typically, a deer-sized animal a week and you could stretch that to two weeks in some cases but right in there so each one's good for about a deer a week yeah and they, and again they can be greater than a week as well it could be two weeks depends on the that nutritional plane of the cat is it a male or a female does it have kittens or not and yeah but roughly if you had to pick a number yes yeah you say how they um there's variability between animals oh yeah their preferences talk about that and also can you touch on something you explain in the book about that they have that there's variability between animals but then each individual animal has variability throughout the year yeah so it's it's pretty pretty fascinating actually if you think of how um, I, let's use the sun river wildlife management area out of augusta as an example in summer there's not a lot of elk there there's a few but they're all back in the chinese wall in the middle of the bob marshall wilderness right so the meat with feet if you will are dispersed and it can actually be a tougher time and then and again i didn't have a sample size on that project large enough to make any determinations but they tended to take these other species like rabbits and grouse and During deer the summer months yeah yeah when things are spread out everywhere yeah. in the winter you have all 2000 head elk would be down on that wildlife management area well all of a sudden it's like salmon and bears in alaska right all the foods concentrated in one area and cats aren't as social cats per se, although we're learning more. There's researchers in Wyoming um, with cameras that are learning some fascinating things about behavior. But for the most part, they, they, they avoid each other spatially and temporally, or temporally but not spatially. They're sharing the same area but at different times. They're still not like African cats, just, you know, all the cats just grouping up. But there are familial rela relationships that are being discovered now in some projects by some um, researchers you know, as we as we sit here, but for the most part, the time of the year, the winter, their food is concentrated, and summer it's dispersed. The only where in in white-tailed deer systems like Western Montana, you have a little more abundance and a little more less concentration in many areas because whitetails are a little different. You know, they're more continuous in their distribution, even within their yards. Yeah, yeah. It seems like from, from looking at what you talk about in here, it seems that. If presented with them, they really like white-tailed deer. 
oh yeah, well, yeah. There's a lot of meat out there. Those those are the perfect uh, uh, cougar food unit, if you will. It's the perfect size. Just the right size, right oh, abundance, yeah. right oh, distribution. Yeah. And I think that's why in Northwest Montana, with white-tailed deer, you know, you know, cats were never eliminated. They, you know, there were still roadless areas in wild country with deer that weren't eliminated either. The the deer weren't. That was a big deal. If you eliminate the prey, you know, you're going to have the pre- predators, right? Mm-hmm. And there was always deer in Northwest Montana whitetails in particular. How you doing, Yanni? Are all your needs being met over there? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've so got... you're, you're comfortable? Oh yeah, definitely. Um. Interesting thing you t- you said in your book too. That you said a lot of cats can have four or five kits, but 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 they'll narrow it down and just raise two. Um, Do they well, kill them? No. T- typically, the average litter size is two. It yeah. can it can be a little more, a little less. But you know, you ha- the it's interesting. So if, if for any mammal, you know, you're going to have lactation, and there's going to be you know, how, what, how much of the resource do you get that's going to determine how, how many in the litter survive, plus a whole host of other variables. you got temperature of the winter and, and other, other uh, competitors. Uh, you know, a male comes around, and, you know, who, there's a lot of things that can happen. Wolves, um, now with cats in Yeah, particular. I want to talk about that, yeah. And uh, that's a, an interesting dance. Um, but at least typically it's two to 2.5 in a litter in, in the literature and, and every project I've known about or been involved with. Uh, so it's not like they're having 10 kittens. Oh, gotcha. it's, it's not, but you do yeah. talk about some having four. It's been documented, yeah, yeah, but common, most common, you know, is a couple. And even those cases with multiples, you see them wind up only bringing two to maturity. Well, no. Like I showed a video last night at a presentation of, this really gets, it generates phone calls, but you had mom and she had four adult size uh, 12 month old kittens they look like adults but you can tell they're a little different looking yeah. but all of a sudden you got five lions walking on your security camera they're high def and they all that, seem to be big that generates phone call yeah. <laughs> and and so she's pulled off and talk about a good provider and the prey avail- availability in that area and the tolerance that's a family of five and and that's not normal but uh, but that it happens yeah yeah four it, it's a little bit at random too in terms of what are the resources available to feed those cats and how effective of a of a teacher is that mother for those kids? They have to take down live prey, you know, once they're that size. You know, and I know there there are a bunch of exceptions. To what I'm going to say, and, and you explore the exceptions, but there's kind of a you talk about there's sort of a self limiting aspect to lion population demographics where they're not comfortable with a lot of overlap, and they're they, they will you you and you go to great like pains to, to show the cases when they do. Yeah. Like they're all of a sudden there is six of them together or whatever. But like in it, generally speaking, they're very, they have like a place they hang out and particularly the males are not real comfortable, generally speaking, with other males being in their zone. And it makes it that you can kind of use that to extrapolate populations in general. And that it also is sort of like, sort of sets a ceiling on how sets a ceiling to how many lions can exist anyways exactly boy you're you're a biologist at heart no i just read a good book i read a, i read a good book called path okay. of the Puma. Right. okay <laughs> oh, good well so yeah i hear i've heard my whole career from deer and elk hunters you know again we're competing with them for for fun and for food right that you know there's cats everywhere okay you know, you know, how, how did you come to that determination and where and in what areas? Because they, animals leave tracks. And it turns out in all of the telemetry studies, virtually almost 
all of them from here and the same down in, in Argentina and Chile. There's about two to four resident adults per 100 square kilometers. And now with DNA technology and cameras, you, know, you can detect the fluid layer of transients moving around yeah. that don't stay and get a radio collar, but they're still on the landscape, right? You can get up to about six, but that's the ceiling. You use the perfect word. So they, they're kind of, to some degree, behaviorally limited. So those fears about just having cat after cat after cat, that, that doesn't happen. It's never they happened. Commit, they'll commit fratricide. Yeah. And well, the males kill each other. Uh, kittens can be killed, but uh, particularly with males. And they starve. You know, if they get pushed into marginal habitats that don't have prey, or they'll get hit by a car, or they're not tolerated, and they get taken out. Um, you know, it's a tough world for a a stock ambush predator. You think about what's really cool about mountain lions, and I like this. They, unlike a lot of the other big cats, they take down prey that are their size or bigger. You know, right? That's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Day in, and week in, yeah. and week out, and and you don't do that, you die. <laughs> you know. And so, but there, you're right, Stephen. There is a ceiling. So, in most states, then it boils down to okay, whether you're in a park or a wilderness, where the maximum is going to be in that higher range. Most state biologists are going to go, okay, where are we with our legal hunting, legally sanctioned hunting program? Are we close to a natural density? Are we kind of in the middle or are we low? And that's where you go out and work with your deer hunters and your howmen, and it becomes a little more social. But you gather, these people are in the woods, right? And, and you get the data you can as a biologist combined with what people see. And then what is your objective? <laughs> Do you want them close to a natural density? Well, and I'll, this is a nice quick example, but in western Montana, where we have fewer cattle and ranches, you know, where there are howmen and, and pretty remote areas, you can manage closer to a natural density. You get into eastern Montana by the Dakotas, it's all private land. And, and, and agricultural depredation on cattle and sheep are a big deal. You're kind of managing, whether you like it or not, you don't have a choice to landowner tolerance, right? Those ranches are huge. But that's and, the driving management yeah, factor. you got landowner tolerance out there, and here it's a different system because it's corporate timberland and forest. And in the middle, look at the highwoods, the little belts, and some of these island ranges. It's a little bit in between. you got to kind of hedge your bet. And so the, the science is easy here, um, and, and our timing of our seasons don't start until December. So the whole um, concept of, of vulnerability to younger cats and kittens that is in some states, you know, we... We're kind of a, ahead of the curve there. Um, you know, it depends on you what you want. How, as society, as, as humans, what do we want on the landscape? And that's different if you're a rancher, you're a deer hunter, you're an animal advocate, or, you know, or a howman, you know, per yeah. se. It's just, it becomes social almost. You know what annoys me? And it doesn't annoy me bad about you because you don't really do it that bad. But it annoys me about what some people do, lion, like, like lion advocates. And I, could, I regard yeah. myself as a lion advocate yeah, because... Yeah. I re like generally for me earlier we were talking about like you know subspecies and ways we think about management and repopulating animals I generally look at my baseline is where was stuff at the time of European contact and I generally would like to see it put back that way where like the, the, the like an unachievable goal would be to recover wildlife to where the current distribution matches the historic distribution this is like a, if i had to like put my personal goals in a sentence that's kind of my goal and i realize it's unachievable real complicated all that but it's just a, a succinct way of thinking about it but people that are, are the other kind of lion advocate where they're in they're really interested they're, they're very protective of individual lions they don't want they're not they don't think population level they just think like that i don't want anything to happen to that one 
therefore people shouldn't hunt or whatever. They're always talking about lions as like the ultimate predators. You know, everybody uses that term. But then they're also, they also want to simultaneously tell you that they have no impact on game animals. But then they also want to point out, oh, because we got rid of the predators, now we have too many deer. And the same person will tell you all of these contradictory things. Yes. I've heard, it. I've heard all those too. All those yeah. contradictions. And, and bottom line is whether it's, it's, it's you or I you know, chasing a whitetail around or a cat or a wolf or a bear, we all have an impact. We all leave a footprint, right? Yeah. That's nonsense. We all leave a footprint. And the question is, you know, how does that affect what we like and want? <laughs> Yeah. And that's what it boils down to. Uh, cats impact prey; they have to. They eat them. And there are some, you know, <laughs> there 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 are some isolated populations of bighorn sheep or or caribou that are relic populations where you know cats are a significant concern because and wolves because you're you know it's kind of it's kind of approximate ultimate thing. You know, ultimately it was the the hand of man that in our footprint that kind of fragmented everything. But now that we want to save this little batch of caribou or bighorn sheep, you know, you got to worry about the cats and the wolves that are there too, because every animal in a population of 10 is a big deal. Right. But in the big picture, um, you, you just, it's all relative, uh, you know, deer herd or an elk herd and, and hunters and hunting cultures, you know, what do we want to tolerate out there in terms of a natural system? And I would argue to both of you, that Montana, can, your baseline that you kind of go to, Montana and, 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 and Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks way back in the 40s, they're way ahead of their time, is closer to that baseline you have than any other state in the lower 48. Distribution. And, and everything, and not by accident, habitat conservation, carnivore systems. And it was organic, and I think this is real important um, for your listeners. <laughs> I think that... Hey, tell them. Because, because in Montana... Way back in the 40s, it, it, access was such a big deal, and it was for people that had money and that didn't, had the uh, same opportunity to play outside. And today it's still the same. There's issues, but whether you're rich or poor in Montana, you have opportunity to participate in some unbelievable, uh, whether you're a wildlife viewer, a wildlife hunter, doesn't matter. Whether you're an angler, we have stream access. You have access. It's no, why, not, are you not roll, why, why are you not rolling all the other western states in this well because you, you don't know, feel that i i mean you don't feel idaho to some degree but I, I i would submit and i have lots of friends in both states so they, they they would challenge me perhaps on this but i would submit to you that in montana way back we were the first state to require a graduate degree to create when while when the when we transitioned from purely enforcement that happened across the west and added biologists right and then we added fish while fish biologists as well you had to have a graduate degree in montana when unlike jackson hole where you concentrate thousands of elk and and diseases an issue up here now as well but yeah. um, in montana for game damage we didn't just feed elk they bought wildlife management areas well, what that gotcha. did, yeah. you know what that did? Not only to provide access in their special places, it anchored winter migrations. They weren't, well, maybe they were thinking about it in the 40s, but, you know, the Sun River elk herd, the Judith River, uh, the Beartooth, all of a sudden by, you know, alleviating, putting elk on, on buying a property and all the neighboring ranchers, you have to be a partner with fences and weeds and grazing, but giving those elk a place to go or deer, you anchored a 40-mile migration, which that's a big deal now. Everyone's looking at migrations, and Montana started doing that in the 40s. Um, block management, 
the public hunting concept. It perfect. But, you know, we we're the first, one of the first to do that as well. Stream access. Show me another state that's got our stream access law through private land. No, this place kicks ass on it, stream access. It, it, you add it all together. Um, my colleagues at FWP kind of look at it as a Montana model. The North American model, you know, was coined uh, not too long ago. I'd submit to you that in Montana, long before, you know, you know we were, we were uh, born, for whatever reason, Montana's pretty progressive when it comes to fish and wildlife conservation, and that's why we enjoy the diversity we have today. Now, the whole world has discovered that <laughs> in this outdoor recreation economy, and we're going to face challenges as more and more people want to enjoy what we have here. Yeah, they'll destroy yeah. it. At least we have Colorado to look at as an example. Well, yeah, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, we and, can learn from their mistakes. Well, and maybe. if you look at Colorado's Rocky Mountain Front, you look at even Alberta's Rocky Mountain Front to some degree, they're pretty developed, whether it's energy or homes. Look at Montana's Rocky Mountain Front. These ranchers have held these ranches, and it's not easy. And, and these ranchers have made sacrifices to recover things like grizzly bears and tolerated elk. So we have three or, uh, two-thirds of Montana's private land, and I've found in my career they're very proud of the wildlife they have on it. Yeah. You know? And that's different in South America. It's all about sheep. <laughs> and right. so they tend to eliminate everything down there, right? So Mon Montana, we, we live in a unique place in my mind. We're very fortunate. So, how far will how far will uh, will lion travel? Okay, and I know some just probably hang tight, right? But now you talk about some really striking out and doing some weird trips. Yes. So, um, like, how much room does he need to survive? Oh, yeah. He, she, and then what will they do to find their spot? So for females, kind of in that 50 to 80 different projects kind of zone in on different home range sites uh -huh. where they move in a year. And, and males have had them up to 150 square miles. But, uh, you know, it's very... So a male might use 150 well, square miles. up to, but it, and it can be smaller. But, but there's male home ranges are typically larger than females. And if you can picture, typically, in most of the studies, the female home ranges are stacked in there with some overlap, right? You have daughter, mother, granddaughter, and different tolerance, if they're hunted or not, all sorts of variables. But males have a larger polygon overlaid over the top, and they typically don't overlap as much, typically. Now there are, we're learning more with cameras on, on, on group associations that are surprising people in some of the work in Wyoming right now. But males typically don't overlap. They're not that social. They're a little taller, but not that social, and they fight. So you have a layer of males on the landscape and a layer of females. So when a kitten is born, and if it's a male, and you got a resident male there and you leave, you're going to have to leave because that territory, that, that area is claimed. Yeah. Um, you're going to strike out on your own. And most of the radio collar work we've done, uh, the department did some work in the Garnets. It was fascinating. Virtually every cat dispersed, male and female, if I remember correctly. Males further. But uh, I, for instance, one time I marked a cat at the benchmark airstrip that had a crooked tail, like an electrical circuit symbol. It was damaged, probably frostbitten somehow. And so it was real identifiable. I put a radio on it, never found it again. And, and after the project was done and I was working as a biologist, in Great Falls, I got a call from the wildlife manager in Missoula. And you, you got you missing a cat, you know. And one of his helmet had treated this cat, you know, near Missoula in the Blackfoot, and that was a female. And but I mean, she she went through the wilderness over the scapegoat. But the males, how, go up, how many oh, miles did you travel? Oh, they can go 30, 40 miles. Uh, but typically, they don't go as far as the males. We've had males go from bottom of the front to the north end of the front, from the Beartooth game range across the Little Belts. Um, they, one of the first 
earmarked before radio callers were available. We had Hellman marking and ear-tagging cats up in the flathead, and one would be marked in the flathead and would be taken... Le- you get point of mark and point of death. That's all you get with an ear tag, right? Yeah. And it would be shot in the Clark Fork by Thompson Falls. You know, and that was, those are males. And so there's constantly so these fluid are, layers. They're doing like 100-mile 100 mile, 100 mile jaunts. Perhaps, yes. What do you think triggers that? And maybe you guys have done science to show it, but I mean, I mean, we're just guessing yeah. that it's a young male and that somehow he knows that he can't survive because it's the territory he's taken. The kittens typically stay with their mother in that 12 to 18-month range, typically, and there's exceptions. So they'll stay with their mom for a year. year to year and a half. And, yeah. you know, because they have to learn how to kill and take down live prey, right? It's not like a fawn where you, know, you hop out and they're grazing right away. They got, you know, this is a learning curve to be with mom. And, and if they're orphaned at too young of an age, they're not going to make it, right? They don't know how to take deer down. But at about that 12 to 18-month age, sometimes longer, they take off and disperse. And it's just, uh, you know, why? I'd be, so I'd be, right be now, hard to explain. that's what science knows. It's just that at that age... They just, they go, they travel. The science that's in my brain, that's what I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There, probably, there might be others that be able to answer that for you better. But that's, to my knowledge, yeah, that's, that's the dispersal age and they move. And, it, and, and they cross, they're crossing highways, oh, going through yeah. towns. Right. L- linear riparian highways, uh, that's what I call like the Sun River, the Teton, you know, the Marias, or even the Yellowstone or the Missouri. That's how they get into the Midwest. And then you look at the Black Hills. So you got these island ranges that have cats now. And then you have the Black Hills that's pumping them out. That's a finite area. Every cat almost disperse. That's kind of a jumping off point for some of these riparian areas to get to Missouri and Iowa. And some random number square east. Yeah. And, and they, they are only going to exist if we tolerate them there. A lot more roads. Not a lot of wild country like here. A little bit. But the further east you go, they're doing it on the backs of white-tailed deer typically. But, you know, uh, as soon as we know they're there, they tend to be eliminated. But you talked about in the book about how that is a key to their success is how they can hide. They can be there. And we always heard stories of like how, oh, yeah, the game biologist knew that in some city park there's been a mountain lion for 10 years, but nobody said anything. And I don't know if those, those yeah, are true or not. Yeah, you hear a lot of those right? stories. But a way to think about it is like you have, uh, okay, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, you got 1,800 grizzlies. How many of those sons of bitches do you see? Yeah, not many. No, you, you see a boatload of them. You meet, did we, see, we saw seven in three days. But then On you got one trip. You got exponentially, <laughs> you got exponentially more mountain lions out there. Yeah. And it'd take you a lifetime to rack up seeing seven of them. Right. Just saying they're secretive. Yes. Well, they're the ghost of the forest. They always have been. Now, there's an exception down in Patagonia in those open parks. You can watch them in the middle of the day when I they're not talk shut about out. So I got, to, I'm not ready yet, but yeah, I do want to talk about it. Anyway, I just had to point that out. But you know, For so, sure. So the other thing I'd say when you're dispersal, if you if you got to think from a species survival, how do you distribute your, your DNA across the landscape? Dispersal for many species is a common mechanism, and cats, wolves go even further. Heck, here we have wolf biologists, that have, you know, they show up in Alberta, way up by Banff that originated in Montana or vice versa, 250 miles. It's crazy, but that moves the DNA around the landscape, right? Yeah, but and, then, and as Florida's shown, they are susceptible to oh, yeah. not having a good genetic exchange because some things can hack it. Oh, yeah. Seek a deer damn sure can. We were just talking about how six of those spawned a population of 15,000. Oh, yeah, Wild Horse <laughs> Island and sheep. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pretty small founder population yeah. there, but it's fun, 
fun to go out and see them. Uh, but what, what does that say about us? This is a question for you two. What does that say about us as humanity if the only reason lions are expanding when all the other large cats are declining is because we don't know they're there? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When people, like you said, well, you know what I heard recently? Um, where I grew up, I grew up in a, in a town called Twin Lake, Michigan. It was, was a lot different when I grew up there than it is now, like a lot of places in the country. But, man, you did, when I was a kid, you had to go a long way to find a black bear. And now a black bear just spent his whole summer around where I grew up. Hmm. And I was talking to my mother about this, and I thought for sure the story was going to be how right away the neighbor killed it. But everyone just loved it. They're real excited to have him running around. I was like, so people weren't like scared and shooting at it all the time. She's like, no, it just became a thing. It was kind of cool if you were the one whose yard it was in. So I was like, just a different change. Like there is some change in perception, you know, that in that you imagine at a time. I hate to say it, but I feel like even in my, I don't know, I don't want to say it. What would have happened in my time? But people would have been. I think people, as much as people freak out about lions and bears still and have like irrational fears of them i think there's also the the irrational fears of some individuals seems to go up but then there's also this thing that's happening where people's like tolerance seems to be going up the, 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 these two things that they're they, they fight with one another but they sort of happen in tandem it seems uh, television and social media have played a huge role in bringing a lot of species into people's living rooms where they they weren't before. Yeah. You, know, you just had family culture. You know, in your book, you talk about, speaking of dispersal, you talk about putting a collar. I can't remember if it was you or someone put a collar on a female, and then right away she drowned in the river. Oh, yeah. We, we, that happens, too. They do swim. Um, but, uh, but they have accidents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're a lot more than drowning, whether it's predation, drowning, falling to a lesser degree. You've had, um, you know, starving. Yeah, life's tough, <laughs> you know. In you, the wild, you lose collared animals to predation. Collared lions will get. Yeah, shot. I had a I had a male kill another male actually, uh, um, and a couple times. That's pretty common in some studies with um, collared animals taking males, primarily. You know, one of the funniest things about your—that's not the right word. An interesting thing that came to my mind about your book was right now for the future of mountain lions in North America. There's like some good news and bad news where they don't do well. Like as we increase the number of wolves and increase the number of grizzlies, lions don't do well with those things. But then lions seem to do well with climate change. So they have like a pro and a con right now, right? More habitats opening up to them. They're sort of like rooting for, they're like rooting for global warming because it opens up more habitat for them. But increased like, presence as we grow the presence of wolves and grizzlies is tough you can take on either of those ideas in whatever order you want well i think first off climate change so it's a good and perhaps a perhaps good and and definitely a bad new story depending upon how you look at it but, there, but some animals are winners like yeah. carp are going to do well yeah yeah well <laughs> carp yeah, love it. typically here locally the exotic species you know just by nature they're exotic and not native tend to be more adaptable because i mean they, they persisted here when they're not they didn't evolve yeah. here, right? But for climate change, it's a it's a big deal if their prey. You know, lions are driven by their prey. You know, if there are climate change impacts on mule deer and white-tailed deer and elk, well, then that's bad. But 
in terms of distribution, yeah, if it warms up up north and temperature and, and a deer and elk can punch into the boreal forest, which is kind of a caribou, wolf, a moose system up there after a certain point. But as that becomes it, a whitetail system. A whitetail deer or elk system, up come the cats can come up on the yeah. back. Because um, so that's their benefit. frontier. They, the south, they've already got south taken care of. Their frontier is to the north. Correct, and to the east. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, a good point. Yeah, yeah. And especially up north. There's yeah. a lot of room. To and, and then, as it was the other question, that was the climate change part. Oh, like, oh yeah, talk species. about how they don't do well with wolves and grizzlies. Yes, or, or, or it hurts them. Um, yeah, that just came up in a bunch of meetings. Where we have a new mountain lion management plan out. It's really good, by the way. We'll talk about that later if you want. But behaviorally, let's use the North Fork of the Flathead. Uh, Tony Ruth, I talk about her in the book. Um, she's a credible biologist, credible field biologist. The North Fork is off the charts. North Fork, it's the western side of Glacier Park. It's off the charts, one of the wildest places in the lower 48. It has a natural density of grizzly bears. It has a natural density of black bears. It has a natural density of wolves. And it has a natural density of mountain lions, right? So and after you read Jim's chapter about it, you will want to go there and check it out. Well, and you want to get a huckleberry bear claw at that at Polbridge too, yeah, right? Did you see that in there? Yeah, yeah. That's what I still, to this day, when I have a biologist wants to go up there, I'm thinking, bear claw, if that's open. We, right? used, to, we used to hunt, we used to chase black bears uh, up in that neck of the woods there and always be swinging into pole bridge oh, on, on our way back home. You know, the best bakery around. I mean, yeah. hands up. But anyway, be that as it may, yeah. So you have what I call, a, I, I refer to it as a predator party, but it's quite fascinating in terms of relationships that we're still going to learn uh, more about. But take, for instance, one of the biologists, I think she was a graduate student, um, was able to observe a grizzly bear that didn't den, actually perhaps a couple, because they were usurping mountain lion and wolf kills on the landscape. You know, it's that cost-benefit analysis. Do you go into den? Is it worth it or is it not worth it? You know, as long as you can put fuel in the tank and you're in the black, you, you, know, you don't have to den. But bears typically evolve when the, in most of meat vegetation primarily. You know, when that disappears, they go in the hole, right, for six months and live off their fat, right? Well, all of a sudden, you have all these carnivores that are recovered in the North Fork, and there's meat out there. Well, they had a bear that didn't den, and and uh, Diane Boyd was is my wolf is our wolf biologist still today, and Tony Ruth was working on the cats, and I love that chapter because you can you imagine as a mountain lion, you take down a deer, you gotta it's like and I use the phrase you're in a grocery store shopping looking for criminals over your shoulder, yeah. you take a deer down. And you got to look over your head because wolves will kill a lion, a pack of wolves. And so they got meat down. And then you throw a grizzly bear on top of that. Then the poor cat's got to go make another kill or starve. And indeed, she uh, had photos up there she shared with me. And, and I've seen it, but I have not seen the grizzlies out in winter. But uh, you can have a wolf track and a lion track and a grizzly bear track in the snow on the same slide back in the Kodachrome 64 days, you know. Yep. And, uh, but that's crazy. I mean, you imagine cross-country skiing in the middle of winter and, oh, there's a big male grizzly. You're not thinking about that, right? Yep. But uh, uh, you have wolves coursing the landscape looking for their food. They can usurp a lion off their kill. And then you throw bears in the mix. And in summer, they're all out. And then that relationship plays out in a different way, you know, because you got kittens and cubs and vegetation. And, but it's those, those relationships it's a are, are fascinating it's a it, there's no wilder place yeah and then that and then i think if you put that to a lot of hunters <laughs> they would look and say oh so now the lions are killing even more deer now yes 
Yeah, and, and in fact, a lot which of hunters is, which say, is obviously true because they're losing, they're, yeah. they kill it and they lose it, and they kill no one, and they lose it, and they kill no one, and they lose yep. it. Yep, and then, so you got up in the North Fork. What's interesting is half of it's in a park, so that's not an issue, you know. And they get millions of dollars come to the, you know, to the park for people to watch wildlife. So that's a different economy. And then you have the economy of hunting, and that frankly pays pays. If you hunt, you pay my salary in Montana. I work for a state agency, right? And um, not taxes, hunting licenses. So when I have hunters come up and say, boy, there's just too much being taken. And in some areas, yeah, they have a point. And, and what can you do about it legally? And, and what can you do about it really? And because there's other variables too. You know, with hunting, you've got weather, you've got winter severity, you have forage conditions, summer drought. There's just this whole host of variables. But where they are right is yes. Um, you know, if you have animals that are taking deer and elk that we want to take, yep, you know, that's competition. Now, is that a population driver? What is the level of impact? That's where the, that's where the debate usually starts. You know, speaking of the, you mentioned the park, you're talking about Glacier National yes. Park. You, you had an interesting statistic around Glacier that only one in 42,000 visitors to Glacier National Park will have a lion encounter. Yeah, so that's that, seeing one, yeah, one in yeah. forty-two thousand, which is amazing, actually. And it, and you it, want to talk about some secretive critters, man? Yeah, and the the rangers have this lion information system they track, and we looked at almost fifteen years of data there, just kind of because you hear the rumors, and they had done that in other parks, so we were curious, and and uh, we we looked at them, and and the number one thing they do is just see it, the incidents and 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 conflicts and attacks, it's it's off the charts low, point oh oh one percent chance, but uh, yeah, very few people even see them. Bears are a lot more visible. Oh yeah, man. You know, and, yeah. Yeah. They just care a lot less about you seeing them. It seems you don't see them, but they see you. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. 
Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools. Free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova's store. Have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Um, you explain in your book, and it, we, we, you don't need to explain like how it came to happen, but you explain in your book that through, uh, through your career and in different projects and programs you were involved in, you had an opportunity to do some exchange work, where you were going down to look at this animal that you know very well, pumas. You're going down to look at pumas in Patagonia and talk about lessons that we've learned around management. And likewise, biologists from Chile and Argentina were coming up to, to, to work up here. Uh, and you talk about a lot of the differences down there, different challenges they face. Can you sketch that out a little bit? Because it's funny because no sooner did I read your book and then... I read this article about the kind of mind-boggling amount of predation on domestic sheep that happens in Chile and Argentina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really fortunate in the United States to have that public land component that is Forest Service, BLM, and School Trust. We have national parks and we have private, but we have that middle area of public land and that's where a lot of us recreate and hunt on in addition to private land. You go to South America, particularly Patagonia, it's either private or it's a park. Okay. Right? So there's no in between. They don't have that culture of public hunting. They don't have that model of hunters paying for wildlife recovery that happened here, conservation. And, and that's the envy. Our system, frankly, is the envy. You know, this North American model in Canada and the United States, it's the envy of many other countries around the world because it's, it's a stable funding model. They don't have that down there. So parks are a big deal. And you go off the park, you're on giant ranches. And most of them are domestic sheep, right? It's like New Zealand, big sheep ranches. There are cat populations down there that live almost entirely on non-native prey. That's what I couldn't... And that's crazy. That's what it, I couldn't believe is that uh, it wasn't... Like here we view when a lion or some wolves... Okay, I got a question. I'm going to interrupt my own thoughts. There's something okay. I want to ask I forgot about. Have you... Do you encounter often... 
where a lion will begin feeding on an animal before the animal's dead? Or do they like them to be stone dead before they eat them? You know, I've never seen that act. My, my assumption is, and is that, that they, you know, close that windpipe until they stop kicking and then they start eating. I mean, you never know. And then, li- and then how do they enter a carcass when it's dead? You know, it's interesting. So I always look at, uh, lions are pluckers. <laughs> so if, you know, I, we always, with you have lots of carnivores, people want to know it's like forensic work, right? And most of our biologists go out there. Well, lions tend to, just like a house cat, they kind of, they, they grab some hair and spit it out. We had some hair and spit. You'll see a big hair pile around where a lion's done And where it. are they working on the body? Oh, they start right in the caveat, the heart, the lungs, some of those little tasty things they'll get first. Sometimes they'll open up a, a haunch, but um, they'll open a chest cavity up right away. Um, and bears can peel hide back, right? And they screw around with a little more. Cats are going to pluck around, and then when they're done, they're going to cover it up, typically. And, and they'll use anything, snow, vegetation, um, and Patagonia, rocks, if there's no vegetation. They tend to, and then you're going to minimize all the other species that are going to come in and utilize that meat, right? And you can stay unmolested and eat for a couple of days, or you'll drag it into a bush. But um, yeah, they, I, my guess is just, just a guess that, you know, because I've never seen them kill them, but looking at the tracks and reading all the literature and friends, that they're closing the trachea. And until they stop, off, yeah. yeah, until they stop wiggling and then they can eat, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, back to what I was saying. Here, when one, one, one little bear or lion or whatever kills livestock, it's generally considered like atypical, you know, for the, for the particular animal. Like they don't just subsist on it. Oh, yeah, correct. But that's really surprising that you talk about that, that it seems like you have, pop, like there's lions, that's what they do for a living. And that's their day in, day out food is livestock. Yeah, so there are these huge domestic sheep ranches. They're the size of national parks up here or larger, and that's millions and, of acres. Mil- yeah, oh, they're huge. Yes, and you and and that's and you'll see you know some of the park stories, the creation in the book as well. That's the good news is you, know, you make a you make a change down there with a the ranch. It's going to be a landscape change with one landowner, but um, domestic sheep out there and and they're very they eliminate the native Wanako. And the Wanako is like a like a, a, a llama. It, it's a camel, a camelid. And if you hybridize and domesticate, you can kind of end up with a llama in a crooked sort of way. But it, the wild version is called a Wanako, and it looks like a llama, right? Yeah, and there's, there's like a llama, a, wild, a llama in a wild version, and then there's like an alpaca wild. Yeah, Vicuña is the alpaca wild version. Yeah. So those, it's all camels and cats in Patagonia, right? That's, and vicuñas are the north end. Camels so and cats. Yeah, it's different than here for when it comes to pumas, right? It's same, you know, we're talking mountain lion up here, puma there, same thing, subspecies, right? So these pumas down there, and I, and I call them puma the second half of the book. I call them mountain lions the first half because, you know, we're here. And then I wanted readers to feel, you know, feel it. We switched to pumas for the second half. I thought that was for great. For the Patagonian yeah, portion. Yeah, I like that. And, uh, and I had to convince my editors that, and, and, and they got it. But I think it adds a little, you're in South America. So, yes, they eat 100% non-native prey, European hares and domestic sheep down there in some cases. And that's a problem. So there's generations of cowboys called gauchos, the gaucho culture. They're very tough, just like our cowboys are ranch hands. And they have been raised to kill every lion or puma they find and other species as well anything that could be a threat to sheep and they run hounds down there too right yeah they do now but even i mean they they, they'll walk them down down there they'll ride them down on a horse uh it's crazy Uh, they're very tough and they're very good at what they do um so 
That's a problem. Tolerance isn't there on agricultural ranches for the most part. That's why, you know, I tell the story of, of uh, Chris and Doug Tompkins buying these ranches, turning them into parks, giving them back to the government. Then all of a sudden, yeah, that's interesting. they're tolerated. Yeah, you're saying that because these ranches being so big, that a single purchase can create what we would imagine to be a national park. Yeah, or larger, larger than Yosemite. One purchase. And you do a few of them. Um, it's interesting. I just saw a statistic now because Doug passed away in a kayaking accident about five years ago. And Chris I is that. carrying it on, the, the leg his legacy. And he, Doug is now being celebrated in Chile and Argentina. They're accepting him. It's amazing. The governments are accepting him when they didn't trust the process to begin with. But they have now donated to be public land that all of us, native Chileans, Argentinos, can enjoy uh, larger than the size of Switzerland. They took their personal wealth and put it all in the park. So where that's important is now you have you can rewild it. You know, it doesn't have domestic sheep anymore. The Wanakos can recover. The Pumas can recover. When mule deer. They have an in, they have a really interesting deer that looks like our mule deer with smaller antlers, a little more of a bulbous face. Yeah, it's crazy a, looking deer. Yeah, Wemule is how they pronounce it. And it's like a caribou it just kind of stands there. They're very not afraid of anything. Domestic dogs can take them down and it's an issue, but they can recover. And so it has to be a park. There's no in-between down there right now. Although that could change someday with, you know, the concept of conservation easements like we have here yeah. and tax laws but right now it's my understanding you know it's almost got to be a protected area or it's a ranch so you work a lot you know, my friends that have been you mentioned they i've had 25 years of exchanges been very fortunate from argentina scientists and chilean going back and forth and get to share these stories what works what doesn't and they invest in private land work like we do now down there and you get landscape level change with one family if they you know, decide to, for instance, only kill the offending puma. So that happens up here, right? They will historically go out and kill every cat in the ranch. But if you tell right. them, you know, just kill the offending cat. The others are being good and eating the few anaco that are on the hill, you know, and, and that's all of a sudden a landscape-level change. But it's messy conservation. It's like drinking coffee and fixing fence up here. Down there, it's drinking mate and, and talking to a sheep rancher and the gauchos. And, but they're doing it. But what I couldn't gather from your book is that lion or pumas aren't hurting down there, right? I mean, like, or are they or are they not? Because it seemed like, on one hand, you're talking about social tolerance and preservation, but on the other hand, you're painting a picture that seems like there's a puma behind every rock. No, they, they were. They were hurting. Can I add to that, yeah. too? Because it seems like if the, for hundreds of years, the gauchos have been trained and brought up to kill every lion. How are there any left? Uh, in protected areas. And in that's the parks. Where you, yeah, you look at some of those government established parks before you know not talking the tompkins parks that are now government parks mm -hmm. but uh it either had to be a european landowner that didn't you know or a chilean or argentine landowner that didn't believe in that but the, you know, most of them with sheep were going to control the cats uh, they had to be protected areas so what's happened here since the 60s has also happened down there but on the backs of domestic sheep and that uh, in the protected area they were even persecuted in protected areas to some degree uh, there was differences in laws in chile and argentina still are today and th they've uh, becomes more of a conflict a permanent conflict where the gauchos are constantly taking out the cats at the edge of these parks you know for fear of predation on their domestic sheep and uh, but it they they seem to be 
increasing in distribution down there based on my colleagues and 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 my experience listening to them it's, which it's, is causing increased conflict correct correct and therein lies either job security if you're a conflict biologist or a big problem you know if you're a gaucho and a rancher and it's messy conservation you know how how do you how do you recover a native carnivore if that's your goal when there's no native prey yeah and uh, all no, the that, prey that's, is that's economic that, value, right? Yeah, that's yeah. where your that's where part yeah. of your book gets interesting. It's, it's awkward. And then European hares are larger than our hares. There are cats that almost exclusively exist on European hares. They're a little more of a meat packet. And but it's a Patagonia unraveled with these huge domestic biologically unraveled with these huge domestic sheep ranches. But slowly those biologists down there have these visions of rewilding, you know, ranch at a time community at a time. That, so my biggest thing, my whole career, my, my book, I, I haven't been a research biologist my, my whole career. You know, I've, I've done a little bit what I call both. Um, I was a management biologist. That's messy. That's where you set seasons and go to communities. Down there, same as up here, if conservation isn't accepted locally, it's not durable. Flat out. It won't last. And so what they're doing down there is trying to make, you know, how do you get a ranch to tolerate wanakos? when they think they're going to compete and eat the grass their sheep eat. But if they have wanakos, perhaps the pumas are going to predate less on their sheep and do the wanakos. That's where they're going right now. And indeed, you know, they're going to try and tease that out. But that, that's how messy it is. It, it involves people and, and, and economic value. Right? Do you regard yourself as a conflict biologist? No. Well, now I'm kind of support staff at this point in my career. But my, I like, you know, my, Stephen, my, I'm... The way what I pride my my entire career on is I really like people. I enjoy people. A lot of biologists don't. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. depends on what floats your boat, right? I like people. I've liked landowners, I've liked helmen, I've liked hunters, I like animal rights people. I like them all. I love the relationship of people to conservation. And my bias is it's got to be very local. And when it's local, it's conflict. So yeah, I've been involved in a lot of my staff bear conflicts in northwest Montana is a big deal. Right? And we have phenomenal staff, but it'll never go away. Lion conflicts actually are much, um, oh, pretty much winter. Well, as soon as I say that, I can think of summer events. But where the residential footprint has been allowed to expand in western Montana into former deer and elk habitat, into the trees, everyone wants their postcard, those conflicts are going to be there forever. You would have to go scorched earth on bears and lions and wolves to eliminate the conflict because the homes are in the wrong place. They're where the deer are. They're where the elk are. So given that the homes aren't going to move, we have to constantly, and in my mind it'll be multiple generations, work with people, the churn of turnover, how to live with these wildlife species. That's here. It's all livestock down there. And we have more nationally, you know, in your book, you kind of paint this picture of that it's going to require tolerance. You know, and you talk about a lot of places that tolerance is growing. And you talk about, you know, the idea that um, increasing populations of other predators, you don't put this as a negative, just a matter of fact, that, you know, expanding populations of wolves, expanding populations of grizzlies um, can have a negative impact on lions, that issues around, you know, issues around climate can affect populations. But with all these areas of concern that you point out, we have more now in more places than at any time in 100 plus years. Yeah, we. I mean, they're like something clicked. Well, and they're just 
they're just showing up everywhere. Well, I, I'll get on my soapbox again for hunters, legal hunters. Um, hunters paid. This country created a mechanism whereby hunters could pay for the recovery of the prey. And you recovery the grocery store, the cats are going to be the fine. Shoppers, whether the we, shoppers show Whether up. we like it or not, those shoppers are there because we can't see them. Yeah. But it was deer and elk hunters that put their money and still do, whether it's working uh, with game damage or buying winter ranges as wildlife management areas or funding surveys. Once the prey were recovered in this country, then carnivores started recovering. So you feel that that's what's, oh, it's huge. that's what's going on? Oh, it's huge. It's unique in the world. Um, you know, in Canada and the United States has that model of funding for conservation. I, you know, I've told this story a thousand times. I hesitate to even tell it again, yeah. but it's quick enough where I can get away <laughs> okay. with it. Is and even my friend Doug Dern in Wisconsin, right? He, he talks about when he was a little kid, if you saw a deer track, you told your dad about it. And now they've got, like, in, in, in an almost alarming way, they have the opposite problem. You know, they're talking 75 deer per square mile of habitat, disease issues. But yeah, you'd go home and be like, I saw a deer track, Dad. And this guy, this isn't some old codger. I mean, this guy's still kicking right along. Yeah, well, I, I don't He's got a daughter in college, and he remembers that, right? This isn't like some 120-year-old dude telling you a story. What worries me most is you get look at Canada geese, white-tailed deer to some degree, when they get to become almost a nuisance level. We take it for granted. We take for granted what it took to recovery this incredible... A valued wild commodity that we enjoy in deer and elk and all the other species with them. That all happened uh, by design, not by accident. Yeah. And 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 when they become nuisance levels, it's easy to kind of brush off what it took to get them here. So lions, bears, wolves, whatever, that all started because people funded the habitat work that supported the prey for these species. And we, I don't think we can ever forget that. And it's not it's not common around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yanni, what do you got? I'm done. I'm tapped Uncommon. out. Oh, man, I got a bunch if we got time. Rip a couple out. Give me your best one. I don't know where to start. I'm going um, to rate your questions. Oh, good. I've been looking forward, <laughs> looking forward to that. Well, uh, we'll start off with the tolerance thing. I tried to slip it in earlier, but didn't get the opportunity. Um, but do you feel like the tolerance – or we have some friends that are handlers and biologists and they feel like with the increased tolerance that we're having a little bit more um, hard encounters as they call it. And being like the two that have happened recently in Washington and in Oregon, right? Where people are dying at the jaws of the lion. Is that just coincidence or do you think they there there's something there? Personally, I, I think it's, it's random. I think uh, there are more people and you look at where, where there are more humans and there are more humans playing outdoors and we're encouraging people to play outdoors. It's a great thing. You're going to get random stochastic encounters like that. I don't think uh, there's, personally, that there's a relationship there. I think there's just more people playing outside. But it was uncanny for <laughs> Washington to have its first ever, or first in 94 years, person killed by a lion and then, then its neighboring state to have the first yeah. in state history within a couple months of each other. Yeah, when it was quiet for like 10 it, years yeah, in the country. You know? It invites yeah. people to be like, oh, what's yeah. going on here? Well, it, it makes way the recesses of our monkey brains fire off with <laughs> great white sharks, lions, bears, when 
you know, I just saw a thing on TV, bee stings cause more deaths than, you know, we're not afraid of bees, really. Oh, the real killer is domestic dogs. Yeah, or dogs. Oh, yeah. those figures? Oh, my God. And, and, well, I like to run at lunch and jog, and I'm terrified when the the wrong dog is coming after me. But but, but, but the point is. It's irrational, man. We drive around. Yeah, you drive around. You know, anyone that's out on the road Friday night around midnight, you know, you want to talk about. Those sketchy time. Oh yeah, sketchy, well, sketchy and if, encounters. And, and a lot of my journalist friends, you know, they write a story about grizzly bears or lions. It'll go AP because people love it. <laughs> people love it. They write it about white-tailed deer. It's not, but people in in the different cultures and and with carnivores and our relationship to them, um, it's always going to be a big deal, like a white shark, you know. Although that's that terrifies me, I still onboard, you know, and I have a thirty-foot <laughs> missile below you with yeah. a brain that big. Yeah, know? listen, there are there are. Um, when it comes to that, there's a lot of irrational fear, but there are high exposure activities. Correct. I am not annoyed when surfers or abalone divers can talk about great white sharks. Yeah, you're I am annoyed when some person that like now and then will go take a swim on the coast and then talk about sharks. Yeah. When a archery elk hunter talks about grizzlies, that doesn't annoy me. When someone who, you know, drives a mile out of town and takes a little walk in the woods every few weeks and they talk about them, then I get a little annoyed. Yeah. There are high exposure groups. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. So, like a Northern California surfer, Ooh. I'm all ears if you yeah. want to talk about sharks. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, your, your point is I, I, think it was, I think it was random. Coincidence. Uh, other than what isn't random is the human population's growing and right. that outdoor recreation economy, we're, we're going to, that's how we, we market it in our communities here. It's big business. Uh, more than ag even now, the latest statistics that are being passed around. Mm-hmm. So you're going to probably have more of these random events, you know? Right. Good question, Yanni. Hit us with another one. All right. You're on a roll. Um, can you get on a roll with just one? No. I appreciate the praise <laughs> for, the, and how many times just in the last 90 minutes you've given praise to hunters for like helping this whole thing along to get to where we are. That's great to hear, right? We often hear that in now in the upcoming classes of young biologists, there aren't as many hunters in those classes. So one, is that true? And then two, do you, is that a perceived problem by you? Yeah, I you know it ha, you know I was a wildlife after I left the field as a wildlife biologist. I was the wildlife program manager for seventeen years up in Northwest Montana. So I had to hire, mm-hmm. right? And I'd always go to wildlife sighting meetings like a coach doing a draft, you know. And yeah, you know, it, 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 the field is much more diverse. It was all white, and it was all white males, you know, for mm-hmm. the most part. In Montana was the exception. We had a handful of professional women. Now in Montana, our management biologists and wildlife it's probably almost fifty fifty men and women, and and as whether they hunt or not um, isn't as important as their relationship with people and working with them, I think. Yes, perhaps. I don't know. I haven't, don't know the data. I'd be making it up. But um, when, we, when I used to hire, you know, what you're getting at is you know, I want someone that can build relationships with everyone mm-hmm. and translate that science into the communities for local conservation so it lasts, whether it's seasons or habitat or research, you name it. You have to be willing to work with those groups. And if you can't work with hunters, you're going to have a problem because that's who's paying your salary. But that doesn't really translate into whether you hunt or not. It's, you know, how okay are, are you with population management and mm-hmm. working with people is more important. Um, but perhaps... 
Yeah, you see nationally, I think Montana's holding our own a little more with hunting recruitment than some of the areas where it's declining. And that whole farm-to-table movement has actually caused a spike. And in our hunter ed classes, more women are wanting to take their own meat, cut it up themselves, and serve it to their friends with only them having touched it. That's kind of cool. That's been a recent thing in the last five, ten years. But, yeah. but, the, ma- but the national trends, I think you're right, they're, they're declining. And, and you see it in young biologists too. Then l- less less hunters coming through the. Well, not necessarily here. I think people come here because they, right. in part, because they know the the hunting is 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 pretty affordable and pretty uh, the op- the opportunities are here. And in the graduate school cultures that are there, most of them. I learned how to hunt in grad school. Big game, you know. I ran a muskrat trap line, but I we didn't have deer when I was born. And I was there, San Diego. Where are you going to hunt there, right? You, you fish, but uh, you know you get, they're going to they pick it up in grad school if they haven't already, typically, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I found. Hit him with another one, Yanni. Okay, still on a roll. Did you like that one? Well, you pointed out that you couldn't be on one earlier, but now that you yeah. hit two, you're no, on. I, I like the first one better. Okay, um, talk. So I, I, I talk get the, I get the first one like an eight. Back to back to the second uh, one like I don't know, five. <laughs> Back to uh, the sport of chasing yes. cats with with uh, dogs. Um, do you feel like there's any negative effect to the cats? Most, I mean, yeah, yeah. Most of the research is no. You may be, you know, whether it's stress or behavior or, or affecting life history traits by mm-hmm. pursuing them with a dog. And actually, if you think about it, you know those hound handlers have to raise those puppies. They have to follow them. But what it does allow you to do, and it does it with the researchers too, we use the same dogs, same houndmen yeah. in most cases. It allows you to be discriminate. The animal's up there. Is it a male or a female? How old is it? Whether it's a legally sanctioned take where they can, re, you know, when you kill an animal, legalese is you reduce it to your possession, right? That allows you to tell if it's a male season or a female season, depending upon the science you're using, you know, f- to manage that population, you can actually see the animal and do that. And as a biologist, you know, do you know, do you, you know the researcher, do you need a, a, a radio on a female or male? You can do that. You need hounds to, to see them. They're like ghosts. They magically appear with these dogs. Right. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. <laughs> sometimes it's 10 hours. And right. they say in there, they take you to places you will never go. Yeah, we've Those experienced that cats, on yeah. just a few cat hunts that we've been on. But yeah, for somehow when you're out chasing, elk, looking for elk and mule deer, you don't end up where you chase those dogs. Yep. yep. Just never, never. Um, what else did I have for you? Is that with one more? Um, Unless you're tapped out. No, I'm not tapped out. Uh, there was a line there where you said that killing um, lions disrupts the field, the field's social order, or killing lions, and then it may lead to more human-cat conflict. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a concept that's come about with researchers um, relatively recently in the last 10 years, um, and it's that, and I've seen it referred to as juvenile delinquent, hypothesis but it's a little more complicated than that but picture a large male you pull him out right let's say right out of bozeman and you have a large male that's very mature and he's he's king of his world right over here and then you take him out whether it's a conflict you know he killed a 
a goat or whatever, all of a sudden you got two, three, four males temporarily until it sorts out in there. All of a sudden you have four males instead of one. So mm-hmm. you have this, it, it's disruptive because they're trying to sort out whose territory yeah. it's going to be. You might actually have more teeth on the landscape temporarily by taking an old guy out. Now, well, that's definitely, not, I mean, this is a very heavily hunted area. Yeah. Everything around here gets pounded. Yeah. There's no way that you have a situation where you're able to, that, that you're going to have some male that's going to set up shop and rule the roost for five, six years. Well, and again, I'd have to look at the data because I'm a data guy yeah. to, to see. But oh, I don't, I'm yeah, just yeah, telling yeah, you yeah. this is true. No, because I, I, totally, I yeah. just said that sentence. And so so <laughs> one, of the, one of the chapters in, in my book that I'm, frankly, I'm very proud of is called Locals Only, and it's how a season is set. If you're a student, it is the, I've rarely seen in any book, in any article, how biologists set seasons working with commissions and communities. Yeah, no, I thought it was really and, interesting. And it's, it could be a textbook in a class because we moved to limited entry on cats and there was a lot of issues because there was money involved with some of the, we called it December dash for cash, you know, and that was happening. You know, so they're very valuable for non-residents, but we couldn't shut the seasons down. You know, we just couldn't do it. It was a supply and demand problem. So we went to limited entry, and we even have male-female subquotas like to tag, address. tag draws. Tag draws. Yeah. And, and that's random to the point of being cruel. <laughs> you know, some people draw it three years in a row. Another won't draw one in three years, right? It's just random. But what it allows us as biologists to do, as an agency to do, is you can take the best science in the world. We've got this brand new mountain lion management plan that's out there. You've probably seen it circulating this two weeks. Yeah. Best science frankly, on the planet. doesn't get to what you want, but we can take that science on a density once you decide in an area what you want and you can give a prescription of males and females that you think, uh, depending upon your je- objectives, can be taken off the landscape to address that problem that you mentioned, yeah. Stephen. And that, that took, and it's unique where we're at, we could do it because we're mostly public land or corporate timberland, but that took a limited entry draw to, to manage that. Now, some areas with landowner tolerance, clearly that wouldn't work, right? You, you need Hellman in there. But incidentally, that line in the management plan, a guy named Jay Colby wrote it. You got to meet him. He's a wonderful guy. He's a biologist now in White Sulphur. He volunteered for me almost 30 years ago, been around 1990. I oh, think yeah? he was there. He is this tall, skinny kid, bandana, but he had legs twice as long as mine. And God, he'd take off and go do anything we needed him to do. And here, at this point in my career, he just wrote the line plan. I think it's kind of cool. Oh, that's that, great. And he's from, I think he might be from Michigan, somewhere back east. But anyway, yeah. it, we have this plan out now. Mark, very sharp brains. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, but here we know Montana, again, is at the forefront for mountain lion management. It's, there's more science in that plan. We worked with the University of Montana than any other state, I'd argue, or province in, in, in the country in North, or North and South America. It's very good. Doesn't get to what you want. That's community. That's messy. That's what still has to be fought out at a local level. Yeah. But it's got the science there. So you can try. It's a privilege. You know, I always take hunting as a privilege. We have to have the best science to do it. And, uh, and this does that in terms of people, you know, being concerned on the other side. I feel like they need to send that, send some of that plan down. And I don't even want you to comment on this, but. <laughs> They need to send that plan down to Arizona because I feel like they're nah. kind of approaching it the wrong way down there, man. Um, and I talked, to, and that, that's coming from Houndsman. Yeah, it, I hear that from Houndsman. It, it, it. The from what I understand, and I'm jumping into areas I know very little about. That's why I gave you an the, out. The, not, thank not. you. The cattle component is huge, and for whatever reason, there's a lot more cattle depredation down there, mm-hmm. and and historically in New Mexico it's and Arizona, low, and low game densities, man. Yeah, and a whole bunch of it's a different system, so, you know, and, and that's one I'm 
very unfamiliar with. Yeah. So, but yeah, interesting. I, although you know, I did think this plan is something every state could look at because um, it's got some really cool um, population models in there that takes the data we can collect on cats. Again, they're like ghosts. You're limited on the data you can collect yeah. on them, yeah. and then and then uh, uses the best scientific techniques to kind of chug out, you know, where your different scenarios could be depending on what you want on the landscape. Have you ever heard the word? Oh, go ahead. Oh no, keep going. If you get, have you ever heard the word concluder? No. Oh, you're too no. early. Because check out this double no, double segue I got. Oh, just you're gonna one, double segue. That, that's new to me. I like. I, it's a double segue. I want to hear it. Be the first, I want to hear it. Just might, I want to hear Might be it. the first time ever. It's intriguing. Um, because speaking of them being uh, ghosts, not only do you don't see them, but you can't smell them. No. And as for Steve, the most interesting thing in the book was that he couldn't um, understand, uh, or he didn't know that they had completely left, you know, the North American continent for a time period. To me, the most interesting thing. Um, in the book was that I didn't know how actually little they smelled and like why it would be advantageous in multiple um, spaces, you know, in, in their world. That was a double segue? Well, yeah, because I, I included your like most interesting thing about the book. Yeah, no, that's right. And then as, as, and the, uh, yeah, yeah. the ghost likeness. Yeah, you doubled up. Doubled up. You, you made it extra smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, I guess the question is, is, was there like an aha moment for you? Where I'm sure you learned about the fact that they didn't have scent, but did you ever just like have one that oh, you tranquilized oh, yeah. and stuck your nose in it and go, wow? Oh, yeah. Well, like literally, you can't smell this thing. The only time I could smell them, really, is if you're climbing a tree and they urinate, you know, they're tranquilized and they're stressed, but it's a, you know, it's a dissociative tranquilizer. They, they kind of, their muscles tighten so they don't follow the tree, right? Mm -hmm. You got to climb up and they urinate all over you. You could smell that. But the cats are really clean. Um, if they're pretty clean. Even bears are pretty clean unless they've been rolling around in a culvert trap full of, of bait. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, do, but, do you yeah. feel like they're so clean that they could be coming in upwind of prey? Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if uh, deer, you know, that'd be good to I, know. I do deer know. wind, how likely are deer to wind a lion? Yeah, I, I would probably say unlikely or lions would have went extinct, <laughs> but, but I don't know. Yeah, do they play I don't know. that? You know, that's you know what you ought to do when you retire. Just do a study or do a study to see if they play the wind. Yeah, that'd be. Oh, I want to be a technician when I retire. I want to roll back into the field. I, I yeah. think that's a great do thing. Do lions play that's the a wind? Good, that's man. a good idea. Yeah, anything gets you outside too. That would be a tough study to do. I know. Yeah, think about that one. Yeah, it would be. So, a concluders. A concluder is an opportunity where you get to. I, I don't even have one right now, but I'm still going to invite you to. A concluder is an opportunity where, you, like, you come in and you're like, "Man, I hope these guys ask me about X." Yeah. And then we never do. So a concluder gives you the opportunity to just bring up something totally without prompt. Or it could be that you developed a concluder throughout the course of the conversation and you keep trying to wedge it in, but you can't find a good place to wedge it in. Okay. So now, without even needing a segue, you can just bring up some random thought. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, for, for both of you, I think, you know, we all, and you hit on it real well, is, is how fortunate we are to ha in Montana to have the habitats primarily to support, to even have the discussion about all these species. And, and uh, you know, bison are still on the horizon as, you know, where we're going to tolerate them in Montana or not. But for the most part, Montana's been pretty amazing. Um, the one thing I think that, and you, you two are, are, have covered pretty much everything in North America, in particular that 
people don't realize it was Hellman that had such a role in, in protecting and bringing back and, and, and being watchdogs for mountain lion conservation. That's not intuitive for most folks. No, right? definitely not. And they do, and they still do today. And, uh, and I guess I would add in the South American component, what um, Chris Tompkins is doing down there is off the charts, different than anyone else on planet Earth with her own personal wealth. She's doing in my mind, equivalent to what Teddy Roosevelt did when he created the Forest Service and really? the parks. She's doing it almost to that scale and still going strong with local countries, local governments now celebrating and accepting those public lands because that's huge. Because then people down there, rich or poor, those parks are going to be the great equalizers. People get married near them. The businesses and the economies are going to thrive around the parks and you're going to have South American native species come back. And so we tend to be we're lucky here in Montana, but some amazing stuff is going on in South America with uh, Christian Saucedo's in all those chapter. He's their conservation director, and I really liked profiling Christian. So it's, if you read the book, I hope you enjoy uh, some of the, the challenges they're facing there because their landscape is very similar to Montana. I kind of call Patagonia Montana on steroids. Yeah, yeah. It's just the Andes are immense, but and the species are goofy from my perspective because they're so different. Big from ass birds, flamingos, and <laughs> flying by glaciers and camels and cats. It's just a crazy mix of biology down there. But that's what makes it kind of magical in my mind. And 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 uh, the food, the wine, everything's good down there. And I uh, can't wait to go back there too. But yeah, you two have covered. I'm impressed you've covered uh, most all the real, especially the complicated topics. <laughs> all right, so uh, hit, hit us with the name of your book one more time and your name. So Jim Williams, I'm the, uh, I'm a, I've been a wildlife biologist my entire career. I'm the regional supervisor now for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, kind of end a career. Had a wonderful career. It's a unique state. Uh, my book's called Path of the Puma, and it, it, half the book's Montana stories and the Northern Rockies, and the other half Patagonia, Argentina, and Chile. And Puma's another wildlife and parks down there all right check where, it out where should You'll, they go buy it um Is it on amazon yeah of course <laughs> it's available <laughs> they don't miss much <laughs> no it, it, it's available in all bookstores online you can just google it patagonia the so it's really cool too patagonia the clothing company actually uh published that and i know they've been getting involved with backcountry hunters and anglers mm -hmm. recently you can get it on their website too but uh they didn't cut any corners what i'm so i'm glad you had here's my concluder well, so and I double concluder. A double concluder. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Is that you know if you're going to write a book, and I've written a lot of science articles and popular you know magazine articles, but you know I wanted to write one good book. Uh, I've had I've been very fortunate. They Patagonia said, "What do you need?" And I said, well, "I want color photos. I want maps to geo-reference readers." The, the photographs in that book are stunning. And and if you just read the photos and the captions from front to back, you'll learn something. Oh, For those yeah. of, that don't have any attention span, Dude, the photos <laughs> of like my kind of my favorite type class of photo is like predators eating dead stuff oh yeah it's a great it is it's a great oh, yeah. flip through on predators eating dead stuff they did it amazing the same uh, two women that did the patagonia catalogs for 20 years did the 30 years did the photos in the book oh, okay. and worked with me and and i and geo and the ability to geo reference as you read in a map was very important um and so they had uh, a young couple maps for could create the six maps and it's it's i was really proud of it and they surprised me and i'll show you two here and of course i'm not a detail person i didn't pick up on it for about three weeks but they embossed a puma print in the cover nice and that cool to scale very yeah isn't that neat they spread so it's a real quality book and and i'm i'm old-fashioned i like to hold a book in my hand still and uh, it's just feels good you know i'm pretty proud of it so i appreciate you two you know allowing me on today to talk about it well, congratulations it's no small feat uh 
Okay, Jim Williams, Path of the Puma. Thank you very much. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.